again, back from our springtime slumber, we are here to present you with I Eat Movies, number 33. I'm, of course, your co-host, Mike, joined by my good pal, Dino. How are you, sir? I'm the other co-host. How's it going? <laughs> You're the other co-host, yes. Uh, uh, how are it. you? It's It's been a minute. It's been a minute. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just, you know, we're, we're, we're both uh, dealing with uh, horrendous weather at the sure. moment. But, sure. uh late onset of summer uh, uh you know the the hard the difficult part of the uh of the summer for our part of the of the country you know the humidity oh, yeah. as it's it were but particularly uh, moist these yeah. past few weeks yeah, yeah yeah i'm actually uh i'm actually making it to the drive-in finally um in the next couple days by the time this goes up i think i will have gone already and um, incredibly tired and sleep deprived i i assume it's very possible Mm-hmm. Very possible. I'm gonna try to stay. One tries to stay hydrated in the lot, as you uh, as you know. As I know very well. But yeah, you're you're gonna be there uh, vending for the good folks, uh, the Mahoning mm-hmm. Drive-in for VHS Fest. Yep, 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 yep. It's uh, seventh annual VHS Fest, uh, put on by Lunch Meat and Saturn's Core. Um, and yeah, you know, it's uh, it's just. Um, at this point, it's just a tradition. It's just I, I only I only ever missed one of them since it since it began, and uh, you know like it gives me an excuse to get to the drive-in because you know it's it's just uh, it's that much harder for me. It's only an hour longer, but seemingly uh, that much further for me than it is for you. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, yeah, I'm excited for that, and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, Fantastic. I uh, I know you've been there a lot, and uh, yeah. I and have to answer to that, I wanted to take you away from the big screen <laughs> to the small screen. Yes, this is this is exciting. Television on the even smaller screen. I don't know how you use YouTube <laughs> on the even smaller screen of YouTube because uh, we do like we Mike and I like to uh, like to go after you know movies that people aren't, aren't talking about in general for i8 movies but we don't want to make it impossible we don't want to make it like we 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 try hard to make the, to choose movies that are not impossible to see that they're yeah. they're out there somewhere so that's yes. that, that was kind of the idea today very much so yeah and i dare say that these might be two of the most if not the most accessible films to our listeners perhaps as you stated they are both available YouTube and I did watch them on my television. I have mm. the I have the smart TV of these days where they get yeah. projected on the TV. So I I had to have a, a you know as close to a cinematic experience as possible with them. That would be uh, a pretty blurry cinematic experience. Pretty blurry, pretty blurry, a little distorted. But I think that's all part of uh, the experience with uh, TV movies from the seventies, uh, especially. But uh, you know, doubly fun for this episode is we haven't tackled a TV movie since I believe our Linda Cristal episode where we talked about the dead don't die. I think you're right. So this is kind of fun to return to some small screen entertainment for a change. Uh, Cause yeah, we've been doing a lot of features. So it's always, it's always fun to explore this stuff um, because uh, before we started recording off mic, we were discussing about um, kind of like the very essence of TV movies and what they 
represent or lack thereof in today's society. I, I would say if, you know, if you're not necessarily um, the Lifetime Network or the Hallmark Network, you know, those two who pretty much specialize almost exclusively in this sort of entertainment, modern audiences might not really understand or know what the TV movie is. Because um, I know clearly, you know, the major networks aren't really catering to that kind of stuff today. Um and the streamers, um, it's a very different beast entirely. The streamers are kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir as far as, you know, the aggravation that people are having with streamers um, these days with content, you know, uh, just kind of being, you know, rapidly, you know, ripped off, uh, you know, their streaming pages, you know, their streaming services never to, you know, possibly be seen again. So that's, that's a whole other can of worms. But, uh, you know, the, the, the function of the streamers now where we're basically getting, you know, TV shows made exclusively for those or feature films made exclusively for those. So the idea of tuning in uh, for a, you know, a specified uh, hour or hour and a half on something like ABC or NBC is kind of a foreign concept nowadays. Um, but thankfully, in, in more recent years, we have, uh, you know, outlets like Warner Archive or Kino Lorber or our friends at Fun City Editions who are kind of opening the vaults on the TV movie and, uh, you know, the TV movie uh, backlog, if you will, which is great because so much of this stuff uh, hasn't been seen probably since they first premiered. So it's kind of great to see these things getting a second lease on life and introducing people to this whole new realm of entertainment that, you know, passed people by, you know, 30, 40 some years ago. That's right. Um, and I should notice that I should make note that the next, um, the next primetime panic set from Fun City Editions, which I was very lucky to once again have a hand in, is going to be coming out at the end of the summer. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. So we are now going to, yeah, I think we're going to, you know, steam into this siding with, uh, with our two selections for tonight. I, th I think we should, but, You're you ready. know, I meant, I, I meant to... Uh... We have a lot of train stuff coming up, so so be prepared if you're not ready to nerd out about trains. A lot of train stuff, and and you know, like what what better day to do it on? Because at the time of this recording, it is July 6, twenty twenty three. Do you do you know what today is? Do you know? Tell me. Tell me. It's it's your favorite actor's birthday. It's Sylvester Stallone's birthday. I've which heard of is guy. yeah, you've heard of him, uh, which is very exciting. And I thought that this was like the perfect day that we decided to get back on the mics and do this. So I figured I'd make the mention there since you love the Italian stallion oh so much. Um, but yes, <laughs> yes, let, let's jump aboard and uh, get on uh, with our selections for tonight. So at the top of the hour, first up from 1974, Panic on the 522. <laughs> Tomorrow or the next day, 
the city with all its violence and terror invaded the trade. So, um, before we tap into this, I just want to kind of give you a little bit of a, of a concept as to what was going on. Because I'm really looking at the 70s. There's an enormous amount of train movies and movies that take place on trains mm-hmm. um, that uh, that came out. But I'm just trying to look at this one period of the 70s. And Panic on the 522 is on a passenger train, and it's a commuter train. But... Um, I think it's pretty important to put in the background the concept of Amtrak being relatively being pretty much brand new at this period of time. Sure. Uh, Amtrak started in 1971. Uh, think about that. They basically took over for 20 private railroads uh, as a government uh, government regulated monopoly. They took over for 20 private railroads that didn't want to handle passenger traffic anymore. And I've never really figured out. You know, I've never really found anything that gave me information as to why uh, or, or or if it's actually the case that someone in Amtrak was really pushing for public exposure that, you know, the publicity of Amtrak was was being pushed. But there's an enormous amount of Amtrak footage on tra- in TV and uh, and film of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a, I mean, besides the fact there's a lot of train movies anyway. Uh, I don't know if this is because those private rail companies that all basically switched to freight didn't want to have to handle regional uh, regional train passenger service and switching with other train other companies. Uh, I don't know if it's one of those like the passing of time, you know, like we're losing something because rail has been, you know, has been made standardized on a national level or whatnot. But um, nevertheless, I do have uh, I do have a, a whole slew of uh, train movies I just want to run down um, because uh, there's I, some of these are going to be Amtrak, some of these are going to be period movies. I kind of tried to stay away from uh, non-passenger train stuff, but there's still an amazing amount of train movies from this period of time. Um, Late the, first, the first one, uh, which is a personal favorite and you know very vivid in its usage of a train station and Amtrak train, is the Getaway. Peck and Paul's the Getaway from '72. Uh, one I checked out for this episode from '73 is called Runaway. It's Runaway with an exclamation point. It is a TV movie. Um, interestingly enough, uh, with Ben Johnson playing a uh, engineer. Oh. Ben Johnson, of course, plays an engineer in Terror Train, but we'll get to that. We'll, I'll mention that again. So <laughs> 73 is really like the the major year, it looks like. So in 73, you have, like I said, Runaway, which is about a uh, a, a ski excursion train that get, that runs out of, uh, uh, that, 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 that um, basically runs, uh, becomes a runaway train out of control going down a mountain. Um, uh, you have a period movie, The Train Robbers, uh, with uh, Rod Taylor, I think. Um, Live and Let Die has, you know, the Bond movie from 73. Harry in Your Pocket has train scenes and some pretty great uh, station scenes. Uh, 73, also The Sting, period film. Uh, the great period film Horror Express, the Spanish. Uh, uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, it was, it, it, that, that was, uh, I don't know if I caught it on TV myself, but I know it played TV a lot. It's very yeah, possible yeah. Uh, the the one of my all time favorite train movies, Emperor of the North, also seventy three, also a period movie, depression era hobo type film, uh, but it was also passenger, yeah, so yeah. passenger. Uh, so so going to seventy four, one of the big ones, probably the best remembered, maybe the best remembered, Murder on the Orient Express, yeah, period yeah. film. 
Um, Taking Pelham 1 through 3, another one of my favorites, is 74. Uh, in 75, uh, Train Ride to Hollywood, which is kind of a kind of a gimmicky um, vehicle for the for like the, the R&B group Bloodstone. Um, then uh, let's see another period film and another great one. Breakheart Pass, 75. The Bullet Train, 75. Uh, last last stop on the night train. No, that one. Uh, another classic uh, that I think is really important, especially in the in the divide, because the two movies we're, gonna, we're talking about tonight um really show two different concepts and i think two different periods of time i think you're getting i think you're getting two tones that were popular at different periods uh and and as you're gonna see the shift between the two silver streak it's the first uh richard pryor and um uh gene wilder Wilder movie uh definitely my favorite uh of, of them also in 76 uh super train disaster movie uh as the disaster cycle had taken over by this point cassandra crossing mm-hmm. um not sure the movie is super but it's like three different disaster concepts with a train um nice. like a train under i'm trying to remember it's like, it's like a train under um uh I think I think the train can't stop because there's some kind of infectious disease on the train or something <laughs> like that. And it's passing through. What is it? It's passing through uh, an area in Europe that's going over uh, a site of Nazi atrocities. It's a lot. It's got, it, it, <laughs> that's a, a lot, lot to take in. Cassandra Crossing is it, it's decent. But anyway, um, the driver has some great uh, Amtrak scenes in it and, and great station scenes from 78. Uh, 79, The Lady Vanishes, period film. The First Great Train Robbery, 79, which I think is a comedy, period film. Avalanche Express, maybe the the one of these movies that I tried to watch and just could not. Like, it, was, uh-huh. it, it was pretty rough. Um, getting back to Passenger and specifically, like, you know, local New York area commuter rail, uh, the great opening scene in Last Embrace. Um, not... That much of a train movie, but it has a, it has a platform scene on it, and then closing with uh, Terror Train from 1980. Yeah. So I, I, you know, it, and you could just keep going and going into the 80s and so forth. But as trains do, they keep going and going. They keep going, you know, <laughs> chugging away as yes. they were. But yes. we are opening with uh, Panic on the 522. Indeed. And um, and uh, let's just should we get to a synopsis? Are you ready? Yeah. I, I am good to go with the synopsis. Uh, I suppose we can also just note uh, before we get into it Please. that that this did uh, premiere on November 20th, 1974 on ABC at 8.30 p.m. sharp. This would have been sandwiched between episodes of That's My Mama and Get Christy Love. Um, and I think that you had also uh, previously noted before we hopped on that um, of the two films that we're covering, this is the only one that had gotten a VHS release, at least initially by Good Times Video in, I believe, 1987. I think subsequent VHS releases would have followed at some point, but the Good Times VHS um, certainly was the first and the one that uh, I believe you viewed uh, for mm-hmm. this episode. But uh, yes, take us away with uh, the synopsis on Panic on the 522. The daily 522 commuter train leaves Manhattan's Grand Central Terminal express for Croton, New York, with a private club car, restricted only to elite members. When a working-class guy delivering wine spots the inside of this car, he hatches a plan with two of his friends to stick up its wealthy inhabitants while the train is en route. Lovely. Simple Lovely. enough. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there, there's a, you know, we enter in this with sort of like a bit of a hokey, somewhat heavy handed narration um, that kind of bookends the proceedings in this film. Um, you know, with these t- TV movies in particular, the fact that they're kind of in the ilk of uh, thrillers, um, there's a certain sense of almost like modern modernization of um, the movie serial, whereas like there's only, you know, X amount of time to tell these you know, very economical stories, whether they have like a 75 minute runtime or in the case of the latter picture that we're going to talk about, um, roughly a 90 minute um, time uh, runtime. But you can see with each commercial break, um, especially in Panic on the 522, it's sort of all like building up to um, kind of like a mini cliffhanger to kind of keep you engaged, to kind of keep you hanging around uh, through the commercial breaks to see what happens next. I'm sure that, you know, that's kind of a basic function for television and movies, but I feel like that's even more so in something like the TV movie, especially a TV thriller movie um, where they want to keep you engaged and it really is sort of like hinging on that. Oh, what's going to happen next? It's sort of like building and building the yep. tension. So I, I do like that function um, in these films specifically. Yeah, yeah, and 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 this one starts, you know, with a narration. It it sets. It's I, I like how it sets uh, things up, and it, it really it like true to the period of time that this is coming out in in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. It's um. It's in, it's interesting that it starts off with an idea of class conflict almost immediately. Yeah, uh, where the narration is basically telling you. And and I, I I need to note that part of the reason I like this movie and part of the reason I find this movie interesting is because this is my train line. This is like the commuter rail that I grew up taking. So like, you know, it's it, it's it's got New York location stuff, but it's mostly like shot in in Los Angeles, I think, uh, Studio City or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's um, from the get go. It basically explains that, you know, the, the, there's rich people who take the train and they go through um, the Bronx and Harlem to get to Grand Central Terminal. Um, and, and, and they're basically saying that, you know, they're, they're painting the picture of urban scur- scourge, 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 uh, urban scourge. <laughs> uh, and, and just the idea that, that there are slums that they're going through and these rich people kind of, you know, pass them by. And I think without really leaning on it too much, I guess maybe until the narration comes back at the end, uh, I, I, I think there's something interesting this movie is trying to say in between the lines of that, um, of that con- idea of, of, of class contrast. Uh, I, I want to note uh, also that, um, so this would be the Metro North train for me. Mm-hmm. At, at the time... Uh, at the time, it was actually um, let me see. I think it was it was still it was owned by the MTA, but it had it was run it was contracted out to Penn Central, which became Penn Central. Parts of it became Conrail, which carried it over until '83. '83 is when Metro North came. You know what was uh, was launched. So yes, this is a Quinn Martin production. This is one of the big television producers uh, of this period of time. And we do get these great shots, these great New York shots opening up it's again uh, underneath the narration of um, of basically uh, the train traveling, uh, commuter train traveling through around the area of 125th Street in Manhattan before mm-hmm. it goes underground and and ba- makes its way towards Grand Central Terminal. Yeah, um, you know, and, and kind of 
piggybacking off of what we were talking about before about how, you know, there's sort of a serialized element to these things as far as the commercial breaks are concerned and stuff like that. And just um, this the sort of function on how this movie uh, runs itself. I, I think that there's a very clear um, correlation between this film and Disaster on the Coastliner that we're going to talk about later outside mm-hmm. of the obvious. Um, but uh, just how, how panic kind of sets itself up um, with it uh, you know, at least in title card fashion, um, indicating the days, Monday, Tuesday. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's it's almost kind of this built-in thing where it's, I, I think, sort of, you know, uh, they're trying to, you know, kind of set this sort of, like, subconscious ticking time palm that it's all kind of leading to, you know, this big event that's going to take place on the 522. It, it's simple and, you know, again, maybe mildly hokey, but I sort of like it because it's kind of building somewhere and, um, the other function that this does serve is that it's sort of setting up, you know, our roster of many characters that we're going to uh, be introduced to and who will ultimately all kind of converge on um, the the train car uh, in, you know, in question. Uh, this film's littered with tons of great familiar faces from television and mm-hmm. people that we would see pop up in, you know, films, you know, films that we love Um one, you know, the first person that we're sort of introduced to, of course, um, is the great Linda Day George. I uh, love that they open with, with with this sequence of her because, you know, I think it's the most she gets to do in the whole thing, really. I, I, yeah, I think so, too. And like it, it's it's kind of a bummer, too, that they don't do um, more with her. But it's also not that surprising considering that like without commercial breaks what is this movie 73 minutes i think mm-hmm. um but it does set at least it kind of opens up on a note with her um she's in kind of a, a scuzzy motel room with a man who is not her husband so she's having an affair um and it, it's treated very matter of fact well, wait, 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 wait hold on it, it's not an affair it's just like well, it's just a, it's yeah, just a, it's, she's she's in first of all she they do they do uh they do place the setting an affair actually means like this is a more prolonged thing yeah that's like, like some kind of involvement or whatever yeah I, this, I, this is that that's putting it very um a little too simply this is more of like she but it's picked addressed. this dude up she yeah no it's, it's, it's addressed in the in in the dialogue because yeah. she wakes she wakes up and she's like you know what the hell time is it and so forth she uh, did you notice that there is a um there's a location like a setting shot and the, she's in the village she's yeah, in it's like a, a bleaker street you see yeah, like yeah, yeah. mcdougal like or like whatever yeah and uh so so she's at some like some guy's like you know apartment and and, and he's like yeah i picked you up at this and she's and she has a great flip like excuse me no guy has ever picked me up like yeah. i picked you up um and and, and you see you just immediately get this like idea that uh she's she's even if you even if it starts off on like this sour kind of you know you know you could maybe say amoral note she's mm-hmm. clearly in charge she she doesn't have any fucking time for this guy outside of well, the fucking time she had with this guy. I didn't yeah. mean to do that. I'm sorry. But anyway, and the best part is he, she, she basically tells him off after afterwards and then pops back in to throw 20 bucks at him. Like, Which is, here you yeah. go. Which, Which is, is great, you know, yeah. like, again, like, the, the TV movie functionality here, it's very economical, but in this, like, brief time, it establishes so much about her character, and I sort of yeah. love that moment. Like, oh, I but love it's, it's cold film. as, it's cold as hell. Yeah, you know? oh, yeah, yeah. She, she's very cold, you know, you know, Linda Day George, like, 
jaw-droppingly beautiful but you know it's such a brief scene but again you know we're open i believe it's monday it opens up on monday yeah, yeah, and we're yeah. here and it's just this little exchange to just show it's proving several things with her in a very you know fast you know a fast-paced approach so it, it, it's very cool um so we're introduced to her and she plays the role of mary ellen lewis uh as um, you know, as the narrative continues to unfold, you know, we're introduced to you know the different characters um, mm-hmm. throughout it. Uh, I believe uh, who do we want to jump to? I know that like with both of well, these movies, it's kind of littered with a plethora of people. All so. good. No, no, no. And and you know, there's there's more people than I. There's more people in each of these movies than I could really write down. Yeah. Um, so so <laughs> basically, it, it jumps to um, and, and talk about somebody who I'm not even going to attempt to touch his roles because he was everywhere dan elkar playing hal rogers he's basically a tech executive uh and you, and you get him in his office talking about well okay well we would now call a tech executive one <laughs> of the things that one of the other things is that in this period of time hold on if you're under 30 uh in this period of time computers are still new and mm-hmm. he's talking about like a computer like some kind of computer that they're working on and you can assume it's an industrial computer it's not a home computer it didn't really happen at this point in time and he's talking to somebody about like costs you know cost and running past a deadline and so on and so forth and he's just he's basically just doing business in terms of a computer product that uh the you know that that, that they're uh that they're I guess they're wheeling out um then we go to what Ina Balin yeah, we have Ina Balin who plays Countess Hedy Maria Tovaris, who is like Conte- a fat- Conte- Contessa, to in fact, yes, Contessa, Contessa. Yeah. There you go. And she, I think, I guess the best way to describe her, she's like a fashion modeling mogul of some yeah. kind. Um, yeah, obviously, all the people that are you know gonna comprise like the the cast of people in this car they're sort of like society's elite right like they I, are but what's interesting what I think is interesting and I, I love see there's so many tv movies that like go sensational immediately and mm-hmm. and like they try to hook you with you know the idea of being ripped from the headlines or this or that um I I love that the Linda Day George just sets it off on such a cold bleak tone yeah. like uh just not to go back to it again, but I I like that 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 quick scene ends with the guy, yeah. just kind of looking like, oh, you know, like like, <laughs> yeah. like a little dejected, like I just real deflated. <laughs> Ina Balin is talking down to somebody because she, she's being shown like a mock up of an ad or something, and she doesn't mm-hmm. like it. Dana Elkar is doing business, but you know, it, it Elkar, I, I I can't think of a time he played a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I like that you're you're seeing the elites, you're seeing all these different rich people in different modes of their work um, before they all come together on the train. Uh, but I like that, you know, it starts with this kind of, you know, kind of shitty character uh, yeah. with Day George. And then, you know, but you, so, so there is at least the idea or the, or the hint of some variance with these different people. Um, I think we're introduced to what's his name? Um, Edward France. Edward Franz, yeah, uh, who plays Frank. Jerome Hartford, who, again, now his function, he's definitely like an elderly business mogul. And what I, I'm not 100% sure, and I don't really know if it's expressly made clear, but mm. it, it's he might be the potential owner of the New York Lancers, maybe, maybe. Yeah. He yeah, could be the owner of the basketball team that, of course, the great Bernie Casey, we love our Bernie here, yeah, yeah. who plays uh, the basketball Wendell, player of Wendell, Wendell Weaver. Wendell Weaver, what a great name. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, Edward Franz's um, 
business mogul function. Not exactly sure what he does, but he's obviously like old money, you know, big business sort of tycoon. Uh, who else do we have? We have uh, Andrew Dugan, um, who plays Harlan Jack Garner, who is yeah. a military general who's fired um, by the Hal character for his involvement in a South American conflict. Um, so there's, you know, there's a ah, bit of a, okay. a board meeting or, you know, a meeting that they're having They're old friends and Hal lets him go for his involvement. So we're kind of seeing, you know, uh, characters that know one another and, yep. you know, the, again, similar to the Linda Day George character where these are, you know, quote, society's elite, but there are, you know, there, there's dark shadows to these characters. There's skeletons in their closets and stuff. So it's kind mm -hmm. of cool, again, building in this function of like the days leading up to, you know, the event that's going to be the crux of this plot here. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, we did talk about Bernie Casey. Well, so, like, OK, so he doesn't have a lot to do in this. But another guy we've mentioned on this podcast before, Lawrence Luck and Bill, mm -hmm. is uh, is the husband to Linda Day George, who's very blase and completely knows about his wife's indiscretions, uh, even though she's still trying to keep up appearances. Uh, yeah. he, he, of course, was in Boys in the Band. Yeah. Um, and uh, did you see. know that he was married to Lucy Arnaz? I don't think mm -hmm. I did. Wait, yeah, they, maybe. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he was married to Desi and Lucy's daughter, and uh, they've been married since 1980. He has three children with her. Uh, I, I was too slow on the uptick on this one. You <laughs> did mention. No, no, not on that. On, you, you had to make a joke about Dark Shadows. So Dennis Patrick. Yes. Played Stevenson. Um, who is one of the leads in Joe, was in two different, like many of Dark Shadows episodes. Yeah. Uh, and also Dear Dead Delilah. He plays Stevenson, another one of the businessmen um, on the he train. He manages like a charitable foundation, or at least one of the things yes. that he does. Yeah. That's right. That's right. He 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 uh, he, he donates money to, to ballets, which uh, are <laughs> three goons, uh, for, you know, for lack of a better term. Um, yes. but, uh, Butch Sundance and, and Engelbert Humperdinck, as they call themselves. Um, <laughs> oh, well, uh, he also, well, I guess, you know, since we're talking about the characters and the sure, traits sure, sure. and whatnot, Stevenson, in addition to managing this charitable foundation, um, he also has, uh, within his possession, um, this mm. antique violin that, uh, as we see throughout the, sh throughout the film, he paid, uh, 160 grand for 165,000 for a Stradivarius. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So that's going to play, um, you know, a small little function, um, in the proceedings. I, but I, I think, so, I think there's some, some more symbolic value. I'm still chewing over some of the stuff, especially with, with the Edward Franz character and uh -huh. with, the other senior character who I think is very important and a guy um, I want to come back to you because he's he's historically an interesting character. That I think gets overlooked is Charles Lampkin. Yeah. Uh, who plays George Lincoln, the bartender. Yes. Um, who uh, is. Um, he has one of the more memorable scenes in this film, as far as he, I'm concerned. He gets he gets. A, yeah, he does. He does. He's got some he's got some good dialogue bits for a guy who. Uh, you know, in contrast with, with Disaster on the Coastliner, there's still people in Disaster on the Coastliner I'm trying to fix their names or get them or, or, or identify them properly because they're not on IMDb properly. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, there's a bunch of like other people who are who are like, you know, porters and whatnot. He's given a role, even though he's just a bartender on, on this private club car. He's given mm -hmm. a role that's actually pretty important. Yeah. Uh, so now we should go to the other three characters. Um Oh, uh, before we jump no, to go the ahead, characters, go ahead. we did forget about uh, Robert Mandon, who plays the role of Dr. Crookshank. Um, he Whoa, is a character. Yeah. yeah, he's like friendly with Mary Ellen and almost like immediately they're chummy with each other to the point where he seems to know about like 
her affairs or her like infidelities. Well, and they, it, it's kind of like it's it, drunk on the train together. That's yeah, it's sort of like a terribly kept secret, but he seems to be like very aware and they have a chummy relationship. He, he you know, he's tons of stuff. Hickey and Boggs, best little whorehouse in Texas. And he will always be known, always be known for soap, though. Mm hmm. So he's he's the patriarch uh, on soap and and a shitload of TV stuff. Three's uh, a crowd. He was yeah. uh, Jack Tripper's father-in-law in Three's a Crowd. Oh, huh. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. But you know, a guy who you know one of the one of the serious guys who uh, plays a straight man in a lot of comedies in lots in lots of cases. Um, but yeah, so to me, I, I always I always go to, to that one to soap. I should note, by the way, that Andrew Dugan. Um, I've always associated him with in like with in like Flint, mm -hmm. uh, the second uh, Flint film. But he's a Larry Cohen guy. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. It's alive. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's alive. Uh, it's alive. Bone. It still lives. Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover. He's his last role is uh, Return to Salem's Lot. That's right. Enough. So yeah, he's, a, he, he's he's a fun. He, he plays these fun like uh, you know um, official executive. You know he plays a, the fake president. He plays the president and the fake president. I think yes. in the Flint film. Hmm. But um, yeah. So we're okay. We're on to the the rest of the cast. <laughs> yes, we we've established the people. You know, society's elite that are, we, that are going to be we've congregating. Skipped, we've actually skipped over a couple because they don't have they don't do that much. There's so many people in this. By the way, I should make the note. I just said already drunk on the club car. That is <laughs> a, that is a thing. They've taken some of the Metro North cars out, the older cars, because they ran the same 70s ones. Not <laughs> not the same well, the kind that are in this movie. They ran the same 70s ones until the 2000s, at least. Wow. Um, w w which were great. But they used to have a bar car. Um, and Lovely. they used to have, a, they used to have, I have vivid memories of being, on, I'm not talking about the seventies. I'm talking about like the nineties, the late nineties, even <laughs> of being on these cars where they would have, um, somebody selling booze. You can still, you could, now you buy it on the platform. Yeah. There's this like loose thing with these trains, um, that I, I wouldn't be surprised. If, I've never seen, I've never seen anything on a public train, like a private car like this. There's a quiet yeah. car. Sure. Yeah. That's a bit of fiction perhaps. But the idea of public drinking while you're on the train being like relaxed, like, you know, whatever, like, like, yeah, you'll get in trouble if you're drunk and unruly on these trains. Yeah. But there was there was always something about like you could go into the bar car. I can I can close my eyes and remember the the, the wallpaper it's like on the warm things. blanket. It is well, it, it because yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It was my youth. But no, it, no, no. I I totally hear you, and I totally get what you're saying because like seeing it depicted in this film kind of recalls like times of like you know how air travel used to be. There was a bit of class yeah. to air travel where people would get dressed up, and it was it was like a big ordeal, like yeah, almost no. going to the opera and being dressed to the nines. Yeah. And so seeing that depicted and even like the smallest way like that, you know, breathes not only an authenticity to what was happening at the time, but sort of, you know, it recalls a bygone era that you don't see anymore in these train cars. But also something that I think still continues to this day, I'm pretty sure it does. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that you're in the city and you're dressed up to do business in the city and yep. you step onto the train and the train is this intermediate space. Um, and, and now already, like, laws are lifted. You you know, you still can't really drink publicly. You could drink publicly among all the other people who are strangers as you relax as you leave the city. This is a very <laughs> suburban idea. Uh, if, you, <laughs> if you're, like, a hardcore city dweller, like, this might sound really foreign to you or we might just sound like, you know, privileged jerks. <laughs> Which I, you know, whatever. I'm, you know, I mean, that, that may be the case. But um, 
you've taken your share of New Jersey Transit. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. Lead in and out of New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is it is this idea of like, well, we have in this movie that you know they're all affluent, but they're different and they're doing different things. And we're 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 given the background of the setup on each of these characters, what they're up to, et cetera, et cetera. But there is this space where they do come together. That's still something that you can feel on these trains at, at certain points. Yeah. Am I glossing it a little bit? Yes. Is it very often like a bunch of assholes pretending there's no one around them? Yes. It's still public yeah. transportation, <laughs> but. There was this feel of like, hey, we could just drink on this car. And sometimes it kind of was like, okay, you know, we're done with our business in the city. Now we're leaving and we can relax. So there is this like weird, you know, demi community type of space that the Mm -hmm. train then provides. And and I think that is something that registers to me about about this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, as you said, you know, there's there's a plethora of characters in here. But now we're going to really zero in on the three uh, characters that are kind of kind of set uh, the plot in motion, if you will. And it's a trio of friends who in turn become the sort of the antagonists, the criminals of this affair. Sure. Um, and it really uh, starts off uh, with uh, Robert Walden, who plays the role of Eddie in this. And he works in a liquor store and um, he's the one that gets first told by his boss that he has to make a delivery uh, of liquor to um, the carriage car uh, Mm -hmm. in question. So uh, this is where he gets, you know, the germ of the idea of, you know, going here. Uh, He delivers the liquor on there, uh, on there. You know, he accepts a check and then, uh, you know, he's hoping for a tick from a tip from one of these gentlemen. And then he ends up getting like a buck and that immediately kind of sends him, you know, sort of upsets him to the point where he tears the buck in half. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of plants the germ of the idea that this could be a really lucrative gig for him and his pals. So he takes that and then, um, it doesn't happen immediately. It's like several days later yeah. where they kind of, you know, get the idea, you know, in, into motion. And that's when we're introduced to two is two of his other chums that are going to join him on this excursion. Uh, and the, uh, one of the other friends is, uh, Rennie Santoni who plays the role of Emil, And we're introduced yeah. to him a little bit, um, you know, just shortly after this, where he mugs a Jewish man, uh, when we first meet him and he's very, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he's very clearly identified as the least intelligent of the three. Um, yeah. There's definitely some sort of learning disability, perhaps, um, with him. So he's definitely not the brightest bulb um, out of the three. And then we have uh, James Sloyan, who would play the role of Frankie and sort of becomes the leader of the bunch. Um, he's certainly um, the most unhinged of the trio. And wow, James Lloyd, I mean, he's done everything, you know, a personal favorite of Dino's appearing in the Sting, Xanadu, yep. tons of TV work, uh, Buck Rogers in the 25th century, Lou Grant, Chips, Simon and Simon, Love Boat, Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, uh, Star Trek, The Next Generation, all the way to something like Party of Five. So this guy had done and seen a lot in his career. Let's not gloss over Robert Walden. All, yeah, three, oh. all three of these guys have, I mean, Rini Santonio, you know, it's a dirty, hairy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, Christ, he's in private parts for Christ's sake. The uh, yeah. the Howard Stern movie, uh, and one of my favorites, um, Bad Boys. Uh, yeah, Sean uh, Penn. But, but um, Walden is probably the most um, the most respected uh, offstage Broadway actor. You always associate him also with. I mean, he had a huge amount of TV and and film roles. I always associate him with um, all the President's Men. Sure. He, he's one of the um, he's one of the guys doing the dirty tricks. 
Um, and uh, he's in the hospital. He is probably what best known on television for like what the whole run of Lou Grant or New yeah, Orleans, uh, Lou Grant 114 episodes. episodes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Woody Allen's everything you always want to know about sex. Uh, Capricorn One. He shows up in Bloody uh, Mama. Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, but like a really respected, a really respected actor. Yeah. I want you should also notice note that um, it's I can't tell if I love or hate Rini Santoni's performance in this, but he definitely. <laughs> He definitely gives his all before yeah. what is before what was clearly like a commercial break when he when he learns that there there's some score they could make to make some real money he basically starts hooting he's yeah. basically like, like like so excited he's like making like exaggerated sound effects yeah yeah <laughs> but uh so uh Rini, Rini plays Emil Lintz I'll just give you the last names because it does it does kind of factor into how oh, New York and how New York these guys sound yeah very uh, much so Fra- Frankie Scamantino is james sloyan and eddie what chiaria yeah chiaria yeah um so like they do have this italian thing at one point frankie does speak italian to the ina ballon character and so forth but i did you get the idea that they were from brooklyn or no did, did, um, did you I, identify I, that i, I can't I, remember I got, I got the sense that it was brooklyn or at least okay. they were trying to ape a brooklyn thing going on sure um yeah i i, I think you're right in that assessment for sure um so it's it's the um eddie character played by robert walden who brings the idea of sort of you know robbing and holding up the people on this on this train car and um they hunker down at uh this sort of like dilapidated hideaway right that um uh, again you know being very economical a tv movie kind of make make the points and carve out any sort of character um developments as you can see fit in the time that you have um this little excursion of where they go to this little hideaway says a lot about them you know they're obviously three guys from you know the wrong side of the tracks they've been raised in sort of rough areas uh they're made to they're made to illustrate like the rough the like the I don't remember the exact words that the narrator uses, but the, the you know the the kind of slum areas, the kind yeah. of like the down scum their heels. A fun city. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I, I, so you know, their performances like go overboard enough. It's not you know, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's but it, it's um, yeah, but but the, but they are they are these guys. I, I think uh, I think the best. Uh, it, well, first of all, uh, I want to note that that uh. When when Rini Santoni when Emil mugs the guy, they have some fun dialogue. But when he yeah. mugs the, the the Hasidic man, uh, he's like, "Where are the diamonds? Like, what, what, what diamonds? What are you talking about?" Yeah. Um, that's clearly in L.A. By the way, that's not mm-hmm. that, that's not shot in LA, in New York. But the Robert Robert Walden, who has always been a New York based guy, as far as I know, Broadway and whatnot, uh, Broadway or at least when he was an actor, um, if he's not still. Uh, there's a great scene when he initially has to deliver the $1,200 worth of wine. Yeah. Where he's going across the street and it is shot by Grand Central Terminal. It is shot like right there yeah. with a shopping cart mm-hmm. and he's yelling at traffic. And, you know, he, he gives one of them, you know, I, you know, I don't even know if anyone knows, if people, younger people will remember this. He gives one of the cabs or one of the cars that he goes by. He gives, he gives them one of these, you know, where he slides well, the, he slides his finger, his his flat, the flat fingers of his hand. He slides up uh, up his neck, you know, to tell him to go fuck yes. yourself. Um, which is like you know, classic talking with your hands, you know, uh, yeah. insult. They're um, very very midnight cowboyish, you know, just yeah. that whole kind of strut. Not not he's not exactly getting in the middle of the road and telling, yeah. you know holding up traffic, but it had that it has that sort of bravado about it, you know, where you know like that's like he's yeah. from the streets, he knows how to like handle himself on the yeah. street, and yeah. you know. I 
I like that. Again, a very small, little dainty function that they do to kind of establish, like, who this guy is. Um, I'm not surprised that Walden ends up with, like, a, a, the meat of what to do here in terms of those three characters. Because I think he's, he's you know, you can't argue that he is the strongest actor. He's the most, he's the, he's the, he's the best um, I mean, in the long run, he, he, he by virtue of his career, he's he's the, the one with the most prestigious career of the three. But it yeah. makes sense that he ends up having to do a bit more. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think as you know, as the film goes on, I also think that he turns out to be the most empathetic of all of them. Although, like, I think the Emil character is meant, you know, considering his low intelligence and what have you. I think that he's sort of meant to function as like the one that maybe you should have a little bit more of a heart for. But I really think that due to Walden's sheer talent, I think that he commands yeah. the screen so much better than any of them. Um, but again, so we're back to this hideaway, uh, you know, where we're so quickly establishing that these guys are from, you know, the wrong side of the tracks. They've had a rough upbringing and they're sort of admiring, you know, this this wall where, you know, names of, you know, all of their pals from the old neighborhood had mm -hmm. written and they sort of start citing like, oh, well, you know, He's dead. You know, he's in the can. He's just getting out. So right. they're establishing that they're sort of like the last of their breed here. So, mm -hmm. again, that's another great, you know, important function that this scene is establishing. And it's here that they dig out, um, you know, a gun or multiple guns. Um, well, we only see one in this scene, but by the time they board this train, they do have, you know, all of them have have uh, guns on them. But again, this is, uh, you know, where, you know, they, they get their firearms and they're committing to this idea. Uh, and then later on, uh, before they actually uh, go to do uh, the job itself. They almost do sort of like a bit of a test run, <laughs> like a test run at um, a liquor store. They like hold up a liquor right. store and, you know, you know, just, I, I guess to try to get their feet wet into like, you know, the, the, the bigger heist or the bigger payoff that they're about to do. So again, it kind of shows at least to the audience, it demonstrates that, you know, these guys are serious about this. Like they're sort of meaning business, you know, that they're, they're whipping the guns out, they're firing and they, they make off with, you know, a, a small, amount um and then of course this all leads up to uh you know the carriage car where the society's elite are and the three of them in you know uh ski masks and their guns in hand uh take over this fire or this uh, carriage car in hopes to reap whatever they think they can get from these people it's not a well thought out plan well uh, initially the initially the the door is locked and they don't know what to do. Right. Uh, the door to the car is <laughs> yeah, locked. Because, which, again, because Again, demonstrating these guys are sort of amateurs. They're a little out yeah. of their element. Things are not going to go as planned as as as, as uh, I think most viewers will realize quickly. Uh, but it, yeah, they learn that that once they um, once the conductor has gone through his car, they don't go back there. So it then becomes like this private space, um, which, you know, it's, you know, the it. You should all everyone should should then realize then this is going to be like a capsule. This is where it, like the 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 actual stagey kind of theater of the the the, sh the show really is. That's where yeah. it's going to be this capsule where everyone has to then work off of each other. Right. Um, Again, totally economical too. Like we're going to mm. see that in in our next film too. But it's like 
these films, especially in the case of Panic, it's trying to make it seem larger than it really is. You know, as, right. as you said in the beginning, we have these exterior shots of Bleecker Street where Linda, Linda Day George's character, when we see Bernie Casey's first character being a basketball player, he's emerging from Madison Square Garden where he's going to sign an autograph for a young fan. So it's trying to, like, make this bigger than it is, establishing the fact that's, that this is New York City right. until we get to, you know, really... Uh, uh, you know, where we're going to be spending the majority of the time. And it's in this, you know, tight, you know, um, train car. But again, you know, as you know, as it's meant to serve an economical function, it's also like you said, it's stagey, but it's also building this tension. You know, it, it's all been leading to this moment. So, oh, it's, no, no, no. I, I mean that to, to its benefit. Like, for that's, sure, that's that's what TV movies really that's what they really traffic in, in the idea that they can create like a lot out of um, out of raw drama uh, at their best, I think. Um, yeah. But uh, but I, I, I think I think there's something more going on here in terms of like a lot of the characters specifically were functioning as archetypes. Uh, and and I'll, 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 I'm still thinking about it. I'm still working yeah. on that one. I want to talk about the director. Yeah, well, yeah, please, because, uh, yeah, we haven't really talked about the behind-the-scenes people here, but yes, uh, Canadian filmmaking journeyman Harvey Hart was behind this, huh? Yeah, he was. Born in Toronto. Uh, over 80 uh, directing roles. Very impressive. Um, so, uh, this, you know, I just heard about this the other day, or this just came up recently, the Michael Parks movie, Bus Riley's Back in Town from 65. Yep, yeah, I doubt uh, it. Uh, I... I yeah. Uh, so uh, another TV series that looked pretty interesting, uh, Court Martial. He did four episodes between 65 and 66, directed 30 episodes of Peyton Place, mm-hmm. uh, a movie that I think it's a soundtrack I keep, I've come across for years. I'm kind of curious about the Tony Franciosa film, The Sweet Ride from 68, yeah. mm-hmm. um, three episodes of Dan August, which uh, it's actually a pretty good show. Uh, the Burt Reynolds show, uh, Dan August. Um, let's see. A film that we get into like the Canadians, mostly Canadian productions he did. A film that we mentioned before, going back to our Short Eyes episode or, or prison episode, Fortune in, Fortune in Men's Eyes mm-hmm. from 71, um, which is kind of hard to see, but I have it on tape and I always liked it. I thought, I thought it, was, it, was, it was quite strong. Uh, this is interesting. Mahoney's Estate. This yeah. could be, it has another title. Um, co-directed, co-directed and starring Alexis Canner. Alexis Kanner is the lead in the Ernie game, which came out on uh, Canadian International with their first release on Canadian right. International Pictures. Right, I have that. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting, very interesting film. Um, I, I don't think I've seen it, but I'm interested in uh, 73's The Picks, P-Y-X. Also, yeah, with Karen Black, which I think might be his, I own it. I, and it was, yeah. Funny enough, I was planning to watch it before we recorded, but time mm. wasn't on my side. But I think that's probably... His most accessible and probably the one that he's most known for, at least in certain but that's circles. A, but that's also because uh, some of this stuff is obscure. Like the one that I like the most uh, is Shoot from 76. Which Cliff Robertson, yeah. Oh, also, Henry Silva, Ernest Borgnine. And if you, in case you didn't know it was Canadian, Helen Shaver's in it. Uh, for a period of time, she was in every single Canadian movie, it would seem. Um <laughs> Really interesting film uh, about hunters, two groups of hunters that meet in the middle of the wilderness. And then for no clear reason other than, you know, I don't know, um, bloodlust, intuition, whatever, they start a skirmish with each other. Yeah. They're just hunting, but they become two camps. I don't know if you've, have you ever seen that one. I haven't. I, I like just doing the research. That one really stuck out on me. I, I would love for that to have 
a more accessible release because just given the star power and stuff, it seems criminal that that's not more widely yeah. available. It, it's one of those movies that, you know, you, you could, it's not the same idea at all, but you could look at it as a, um, you know, you could look at it similar to like a movie like Wolf Lake, uh, but definitely Which, has yeah, like big tones, of has tones of what would, you know, what would happen later uh, uh, in say first blood, even like mm-hmm. a little bit of that. You see, um, brutality in the wilderness and, and anyway uh really good television film um i think i don't know if shoot ever came out on tape i know it hasn't been available it, it i, I it's, it was on youtube but mm. the city have you seen this from 77 no robert forrester uh don johnson and playing the i think i don't think he ever speaks playing the maniac playing the guy who is is like just running around the city um committing crimes mark hamill Wow, it's a good one. Seventy-seven. Uh, Gotta check that one. It's got. Out. A, it's got a. It's pretty easy to find on tape. Uh, and then one I have not seen, but looks really interesting. Eighty-one. The High Country. Not Ride the High Country. Just The High Country. Another wow. Canadian film. The City. I think was done for a, a, a U.S. network, but a Canadian film with Timothy Bottoms and Linda Pearl, mm. uh, which looks quite interesting. Uh, but yeah, hard. You know quite a bit of stuff and i think if more of that was available uh because it's they're obscure like i don't know if i've ever seen the sweet ride on on, on video i've seen yeah. the soundtrack a million times um and then just quickly because there's not that much there uh, eugene price the writer of this yeah uh, he he had a pretty interesting uh sure. background yeah before uh you know before he kind of segued into doing you know uh almost exclusively television he started uh, sort of uh, penning screenplays to risque adult fair uh, 1967's The Singles and guess what we learned uh, in school today which was directed by John G. Avildsen who would of course go on to do Rocky and The Karate Kid um, before Is that the same wrote... movie as The Stoolie or no? It's a different one. No, The Stoolie is different He uh, before uh, Stoolie he wrote uh, Corky in 1972 and then okay. in the same year he did The Stoolie with uh, Jackie Mason of course. Uh, directed that by was... Avildsen right? Yeah, yeah. Co- well it, it, it it's, he's credited as co-director. Okay. I don't know how true that is, if it was actually co-directing or if he really was the the main man behind it. But yeah, like Price, again, pretty interesting guy, you know, like with a, you know, that that upbringing in film. But then he would, of course, transition to more television fare. He wrote on everything from Kung Fu and Ryan's Hope to the yep. streets of San Francisco and General Hospital. So, you know, a pretty, uh, pretty proficient career. Marcus Welby, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm. I mean, but like, I Jackie Mason in a stool pigeon drama, right? That just sounds like. <laughs> where's that? That's where just, is that? Yeah, somebody get on that, please. I mean, I yeah, that just uh, yeah, mind blowing. <laughs> like, it's probably up there with like uh, Rodney Dangerfield in the Projectionist. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> in terms of like, wait, where's this movie lie in? Your where has this as, been my whole life? Jesus. As a, the, the Projectionist is accessible at least, but I don't know if that. That still sounds pretty crazy that's so all right <laughs> yeah yeah it might be it might have to be um so yeah you know we established th- th- this whole kind of like elites you know who are all buddies or seem to be all buddies uh that's another thing that kind of you know might change as, as the course of the story comes but you know they play cards there uh in in this club car they they, they drink uh mm-hmm. obviously they have the bartender the uh, the george lincoln character um, and then, as you said, uh, in come our three hoods. Uh, I don't, I don't know what to call them. The three antagonists, um, <laughs> who are just completely unaware that rich people, these rich people, 
are not carrying with them colossal amounts of cash. Right. <laughs> um, which I, I think is also interesting. I just I mentioned uh, by virtue of it also having some train footage in it, um, uh, hair in your pocket. If you've not seen that, um, I, I, I know people that, you know, there's mixed idea, you know, mixed reception on that one. I like that movie. It's very dry. It's very like end of an era, like, you know, a pickpocketing movie where like mm-hmm. things are changing. But there's literally a scene in it where Walter Pigeon says to James Coburn uh, or James Coburn says to Walter Pigeon, who Pigeon uh, is the elder pickpocket. For some reason, at the end of his career, he played a couple pickpocket roles. He says, no, eventually they're just going to hook us up to one big system. It'll just be credits. Like, we won't be using cash. And Walter Pigeon's un-American, impossible, and so forth. So the <laughs> idea of of a, of a cashless society was there at this period of time. The yeah. idea uh, of, of we're not going to need cash, even though some people were reacting badly towards that, is happening at this time. But our tragic antagonists, uh, they, can't even fa- they can't even fathom that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's sort of the funny uh, notions that we'll see kind of going to demonstrate just like the depths of how far out of their range um, they are because because they don't really know what they're doing or, you know, they're just so hyper unaware of like, you know, what what they think these people's function are in society and how they conduct and handle themselves, which right. is an interesting um, thing. But, you know, of course, like, you know, right from the get go, when they enter in, it's of course the the tension is there because obviously everybody in the car is immediately terrified um, being, stu- you know, being held up like this, um, you know, things also are, like confused. Also, yeah. You know. Yeah. Oh, totally. To 100 percent confused. And, you know, as orders are being barked and, you know, uh, the the hoods aren't exactly getting uh, what they want out of them. You know, things are being exposed. Like, I think that they go into Mary Ellen's uh, purse and they expose her infidelity by, you know, finding a motel key in her purse. So that like, a, like, like a nightie or something. Yeah. 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 So that's, you know, kind of exposes it right there in front of her husband who, you know, more or less knew, maybe didn't know as much to that degree. Um, so, and you then, know, and then the, you know, the, it's peppered with occasional really memorable lines. Yeah. Cause yeah, then, oh. cause then the Edward France, the, 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 the uh, yeah, Edward for the character played by Edward France, you know, delivers the classic, you know, the the the, the, the McCarthy trial line. Have you no decency? Yeah. And they respond, we couldn't afford it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, that like that. That's the thing is like as you know, as much as um, the Robert Walden character is definitely the most charismatic and I think most accomplished actor out of them. They still are the th- between the three of them. They're all gifted with pretty great lines <laughs> across yeah. it. And their oh, deliveries yeah. are pretty good. I mean, you know, one, one that speaks to me is at a certain moment where. Um, Emil thinks that uh, Lawrence, um, Linda DeGeorge's husband, um, can cut him checks until Frankie reminds him that he's being made a fool of. And then Emil yes. goes, you trying to make a meatball out of me? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You trying to make me into a meatball? Yeah, yeah like, it's great. It's okay. great stuff. It's really good. So, um, you know, once we get to this moment, um, 
you know, I kind of feel like the suspense and tension kind of goes in and out. It's sort of hard to maintain that sort of thing because it's like, where is this all ultimately going to build to? It's kind of hard to maintain that. Um, are they are they going to get off scot-free? Are people going to die in this? Are, are the hoods going to be overtaken? So they play with that throughout it. And, and you know, we see um, tensions, uh, you know, tensions arising uh, between the hoods themselves and also between the people on this character carriage car um, that are meant to kind of be, you know, peers or colleagues or, or at least equals, uh, you know, you know, one moment that speaks to me um, is an exchange where the character of uh, Harlan Jack Garner asks Wendell to back mm-hmm. him up at one oh, time yes, yes, on yes, his yes. attempt to like thwart the criminals. And then it's Wendell brings up the point how like after a year and a half of traveling on the train and having like next to no communication with each other, he wants him to essentially gamble his life. So right. it's this weird thing. It's like, I'm not going to like, I, uh, we barely know we ride the train together, but you barely talk to me. So, 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 so yeah. So in this, you know, again, these are theatrical devices. I mean, they feel that way to me. Just the idea that, you know, you introduce pressure into the situation, all these people who have, like, a generally light, like, friendly atmosphere. And then you start to watch things break down as they're under pressure. Yeah. So, like, things like that where, okay, we're supposed to we're supposed to think that um, the uh, the Wendell Weaver character, Casey, is just another one of these elites. But when, the, you know, when this character says to him, all right, you're going to cover me, you're going to tell me, you know, and so forth, then you start to see like, well, no, he doesn't agree with him on this. And you start to see these different fractures between the two of them. You know, it occurs to me, um, this is 74, mm-hmm. uh, one of the big hits, one of the most New York movies, for better or for worse, in this period of time is Death Wish. Yeah. Um, think that, I know you know the movie, you think of like, you think of like the party scenes in that movie at like the beginnings where we, where you get all these like people who are like peers of, of, of Charles Bronson and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about like the crime in this city and, and so yeah. on. And, and what should we do and the welfare for whatever. And there's always like, you know, uh, catchphrases about, about what's going on in you. If that, if those, if, if, if they had, if it was a kind of movie, if winter was the kind of director to make something more interesting out of it, he might have done what this what this movie is doing. It's mm-hmm. trying to show you these rich people, like it's trying to flesh out some more character out of them. You know, the Robert Mandan character is a doctor, and he says, "No, I deal with younger people. I deal with like people who have lesser, you know, who have less privilege." And someone else calls him out on that as well. You get all these like you get more friction between these people who are thinking for themselves, and they're more fleshed out in terms of characters. Um, than you do in some bigger budget things that are trying to make all all the rich people like look exactly the same. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it, the, this movie, I don't know if that's exactly the main point of this movie, but you do get that little bits, those little bits of friction. Now I'm looking more and more at these characters as being archetypes, as being, if not kind of uh, something you could just strip down to basic, um, to basic urges or just symbols of those urges or whatnot, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I think you're going to get more. I think the more I look at this, the more the more that comes out. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. I, I mean, it's it's not it's not a revelatory um, accomplishment by any means, but I definitely think that this is not black and white um, classism or, you know, class disparity that we're seeing here. I, I think in the limited time that this TV movie has to accomplish what it's doing 
they're trying to pepper that in there that there's mm-hmm. you know there, there's a little bit more gray to these people here and you know do they uh, achieve it in spades not exactly but like the attempts are there you know what i mean and they're yeah. they're very they're very noble and noteworthy efforts for what this production is i think and i think that that you know overall is is a noteworthy thing i think um, the two i think the two things just in terms of i'm sorry you were saying go ahead no no, no continue uh, the two things that I, that I'm still chewing over is just these two characters, uh, just George and Jerome Hartford, uh, France. Mm. George is uh, Lampkin. Uh, I want to note, by the way, because I did, I did, um, I think Charles Lampkin is, is pretty o- overlooked. Uh, let's see, um, over a hundred roles in movies and television. He was in Frank's Place. He was in Cocoon. He shows up in Watermelon Man. Um, but he was an academic and ethnomusicologist. He worked in spoken word very early. He was mm-hmm. a singer and he was, you know, he was an academic. He conducted Paul Robeson in 1944. This is just the guy who plays the bartender. Okay. Jeez. He was acting on screen is going back to 51. He was in roots. He played a professor. He was a professor in real life. He played a professor in roots. Emmy nominated a couple years after this. Um, he, he shows up in like episodes of like Night Court, but he had this really interesting, like multifaceted career as an academic, as a performer, as a conductor, as a director and so forth. And, uh, died, passed away in 89, but he's one wow. of these guys who like, you know, anyway, but so the, the Charles Lampkin character, George and Jerome Hartford, these are the two elderly, these are the two elderly characters on the train. Mm-hmm. One of them is part of the elites. One of them is part of the working class. I think they're representatives of wisdom. Yeah. I, I think those two guys are there to show us because to show us like experience and wisdom that the other characters don't have. Absolutely. Um, so the Charles Lampkin, you know, George is just like, listen, you got to pay me five dollars. You know, I don't this, this thing is happening. You know, you're holding them up. I'm just a working guy. I'm yeah, just the guy I got a mortgage gotta, to pay. Yeah, and he's like, I wouldn't like it if you killed me, but I still have to do my job. And he does it. He just delivered so soberly and earnestly. But then there's that scene. Um, I'm trying. I, I didn't write it all down, or I didn't write it down. But um, where where Jerome Hartford is trying to talk, uh, I think the Andrew Dugan character, who wants who, who he's got he's got like rage, and and yeah. he wants to kill them. He's like he's talking about how the man who doesn't stand up for himself is already dead and so on. And he yeah. says, if you do, you'll be bringing a holocaust down on all of us. Yeah. And I think that's really deliberate fucking wording because oh, it's like totally. this is a guy who has seen he's old enough. And I mean, you realize that guy was in was in the thing from another world. Did you catch that? Yes. Yeah, I did. Like what? <laughs> this guy. I mean, we're talking about a real veteran actor, but he's uh, you know, he's seen horrors of the 20th century by virtue of his age yeah so like him talking about like the terror and bloodshed that could happen if if these guys start killing people like that's riveting like that's like and he's reasoning against another guy who's younger than him who's actually the military guy right uh i i think there's some interesting interplay there i think so yeah. yeah, no, abs- absolutely. And that, that again, that's the stuff that like, I think that there's, you know, th- there there's nuggets of some of some really solid things going on here. And you've, you've touched on several of them right there. Um, you know, we, we see certain things, you know, again, it's it's this play of tension mm-hmm. building and kind of being, uh, 
you know, cool down when it, whenever they can. Uh, there's a moment where Mary Ellen convinces Emil to take his mask off, which of course yes. raises raises tension amongst uh, the criminals because that's now, when things really start to fall apart. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 when their foundation really starts to crumble because now their identities are revealed. Um, they 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 start to lose sight of you know you know their their cover names now you know their real names are being um exposed uh so that that becomes um something and then uh you know where emil opens up to mary ellen when he reveals that uh you know he's killed someone in the past well i want to actually talk about time right he says he's he, he, he mentions I, I don't doubt because he 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 seems to allude or sort of, you know, kind of, ex, you know, explicitly say to Mary Ellen that he's killed someone in the past because Frankie and Eddie told him to. But he seems to, like, make a note that he seems to have blacked it out or right. something like I think that he's trying to come clean, but he wants to leave this, you know, maybe this potential that it didn't really happen or perhaps that's his desire. So, again, it's kind of painting this Emil as this really tragic you know, person of circumstance. He's not exactly the brightest. He fell in with, you know, the local hoods and this is just, you right. know, the, 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 um, well, he's the figure the of in it. He's the figure representing innocence really. Yeah. Right. Yeah, like, exactly. And it's tragic. And, and in contrast, and again, we're going back to Walden being this centerpiece who has the best acting, some of the best acting to do in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so Frankie is just fury. He's just rage. Like, yeah. and, and we don't get, and, and the point at which, you know, things really fall apart when, um, when, when Emil has been shot, uh, in the struggle with, with the, uh, the Wendell character who, yeah. uh, you know, again, we are, we are big Bernie Casey guys here. Yeah. <laughs> um, really beautifully acted in small pieces where it's like, he's not happy about what happened. He feels terrible. And Santoni is is just registering like this the shock of having gotten shot in such a tragic way, but yeah. okay. So you have you know these these three antagonists. You have the innocence, which is Emil. You have the fury and the rage, which is Frankie. As soon as he realizes Emil is shot, he just starts firing shots all over the place for yeah. no reason. Like it's, right. it's just misplaced, misspent like rage. But right. then you get the Robert Walden, then you get um, Eddie in the in the center, and he's like. He's he's really caught in between because there, there's yeah. you know I I I think the bubble that sort of bursts you know per, you know before we really get the bullets flying is this you know this kind of ha, you know hail mary attempt by the character of Hal yeah. who um you know tries to give the crooks you know an alternate option to something that they're bound to regret and it, it, that's the idea of you know offering them jobs offering which is amazing which, which is, is am- incredible and which and which he, seems which seems insane and stupid but also you know, but also like it makes me think of other things. It makes me think of the end of the, of the counterculture. You know, yeah. like it, 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 you know, it makes me think of um um um. Oh my god, the big fix. Yeah. Uh, the big fix. It's like there's a scene where F. Murray Abraham, the underground radical, is like, you know, I stayed underground. I stayed devoted to the cause. Everyone else started getting jobs. They started getting jobs. You know, yeah. like, and that's, you know, I I, I it just the interesting echoes of that. But the thing that I think Eddie, the Walden character, is what he's representing between those two poles of innocence and, and just total rage is he now has reason. He has to work with reason. He has to actually – he has the choice – he has uh, freedom of choice. He's illustrating that humans have freedom of choice, but they have to have reason there. And, and I think yeah. that that reason – 
because he's he's meant to be an undereducated guy, but he has to make the decision himself. I think those options are then illustrated by all the rich people around him. Yeah, because and they're I, arguing with each other. Yeah, and and all of this, you know, you know, when Hal, who who I think again a really good subtle uh, bit of acting right there, where you can see like nothing but sincerity in Hal's offer to them too. I don't right. really think that it's a plea to just try and get get him. And the other passengers off the hook. There, there's real emotion and real, you know, sincerity in what he's saying to them. And Eddie, I think, is really the first one to fold and says that you know he wants a job and recognizes that he and his friends are losers. But again, this echoes back to the start of the mm. film where we're introduced to Eddie. What do we see? He's the only one with a fucking job. Yes. <laughs> you know yes, what I yes, mean? Yes, like yes, he's yes. the only one. He's actually working in the liquor store and he's making a buck. It's not nearly as much. And he's probably on the lower ladder of society, but mm-hmm. he's the only one working. So he's st- he's treading that line, you know, yeah, from yeah. the start. And then he's pushed into this position where he thinks that he can make a new life for himself, you know, doing something, you know obviously unforgivable but then here he is you know another moral conflict here where you know this unexpected opportunity opens up and he recognizes it and he wants the job now from al he wants it and then of course um i guess you know the ticking time bomb really goes off once you know there's a scuffle uh you know jack garner uh you know determined to overthrow eddie or die trying uh he gets knocked out but then Mm -hmm. Wendell takes Frankie over and Emil can't bring himself to shoot. Uh, ultimately, Wendell scuffles uh, with him and then shoots uh, shoots Emil. Eddie ends up shooting Frankie as Frankie's kind of shooting sort of, you know, as you as you mentioned, you know, crazily all around the car. Does he, does he shoot him? Or no, he, he, he knocks him out with the gun, right? Does he hit him? I thought he shot. Oh, I don't know. If he, yeah, I, I'm okay. pretty sure he he. He shot at him, but um, which, you know, of course, before, you know, you know, we get to the conclusion of the film, I thought that he kills him outright because Emil does die, um, you know, in that. And then this is where the film is bookended once again with a, I would say a little hokey bit of narration, if I well, say I, so. I don't think it's that hokey. It is. It is in some ways. But I think what it's saying if you peel it back a little bit, it's kind of interesting. But let's not forget they stop. And I, and initially I was like, Croton, why did they do the Croton? Why did they do the Hudson line? Mm-hmm. Uh, they stop at Sing Sing. That's real. Yeah. The train goes through Sing Sing. I don't know mm-hmm. if it stops there. But I did like that little bit of like, that's accurate. Like that's yeah. actually like based on reality. Yeah. Um, and the Ina Bowen character, she, she you know, out of just, you know, for, you know, doesn't know what else to do, throw, uh, breaks the window. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, again, it, it, this movie, like, it, it, when it really kind of gets into gear, it's moving. But you, you do get this this period which might seem a little dry. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's but more so is on. the function of, you know, trains themselves. You know, we're stopping, we're going, we're stopping, we're going. Which so is I, what George says, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it says, like he's like, that's the function of trains. They stop and they go, <laughs> you know, something along those lines. But it does it does definitely play into the rhythm of the narrative. Like I said, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always keep the momentum up, that tension up necessarily, mm-hmm. that that suspense up. But, you know, when it hits, it, it does so fairly well, I think. Yeah. And then, you know, so. you know, we get to this conclusion, uh, you know, this narration where it's revealed that Emil died, uh, Frankie is imprisoned, and then Eddie ultimately uh, has become a messenger boy in a computer room. So we learn the fates of, you know, the three people that, you know, put this, you know, th- this plot into motion, um, you know, 
like I said, I, it, it's a little hokey to me, but I think that's just sort of like, you know, it, well, it, it's the times and that's the kind of the film that they were making. So I have one question for you. There is a scene or a quick beat beat. I think you see it twice where a bag falls, maybe after they pull the emergency brake or whatever. And the bag is full of money. Is that the money that they've collected that? or is that actually something else? No, I yeah, I, I took that as the bag of money that they collected because I think that was the supposed to be um, the money that mainly the money that they collected from the liquor store from the liquor okay that they robbed early on because they didn't because when they're going around they don't seem to be getting a lot of cash for or much of anything right. from the people in the carriage sure, car so sure, i, sure, I sure. think it's just i think it's the limited cash that they got from the liquor store at least that's how i interpret i it. think there's i think there's um i think there's a potential because there is a certain dry irony of this whole this whole movie there's a potential that there just happens to be a bag of money that one of these guys is carrying to make just to, to drive an ironic point that that uh, of the uselessness of the whole thing that it just falls down all you by the way there is cash on the train you yeah. know but it's all <laughs> too late now um yeah. <laughs> i think it's interesting that the stradivarius has you know again i think there's some, some more of a symbol there do we get this scene where i think it's stevenson Oh, you know, it's cradling right before the, right before that that that, that close is cradling the the Stradivarius because yeah. it has survived. Yeah, like I don't know if that's supposed to represent culture, antiquity, uh, wealth, power. I, you know, it's interesting that you get that shot of the Stradivarius. But then, okay, so that close I think is is interesting. I want to look into that, like that narration coming back. Yeah, because you know, the first of all, first of all, um, the narration tells us to be uh, to be sympathetic towards Emil, calls him poor fella. He passed mm -hmm. away. Yeah. Uh, I like that we were set up when we already stopped at Sing Sing, and then Frankie is now in Sing Sing, and he's watching the trains. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, I don't know if you remember, it's really, I think it's a really short beat at the beginning where we learn that Frankie has a problem with headaches. Do you mm -hmm. remember that? I yeah, that yeah, yeah. It's kind of like okay, interesting setup. Yeah. Um, but. Eddie, okay? He's a messenger boy in a computer room. This is what it says. An acolyte carrying offerings of holy cards to the electronic master. And he dreams at night of glorious beaches and tanned thighs and prays. And then you get the, which is interesting and and really kind of like darkly, like he, that's a dark assessment of, of, of capitalism. Because now it's like, He's got the job. He got the job. He did. He got the best thing out of it. Yeah. But he's he's now a slave to a computer. Offerings of holy cards to the that, that that's computer yeah. cards. That's that's I mean, punch cards. Yeah. Like I don't know. It's it, it's not it's not exactly making it sound all that good. But, no. But, no. But then it, we finish with the rich people where it says I think it says you know that they continue on their golden shuttle of you know protected. What is it of wealth, power, and then their well-guarded skin? Like yeah. it still makes them look really bad. Yeah. And now yeah. there's a guard on that car, and the car has like a members-only. You know, it still shows you that like someone. You know, with all this, the the elites are still doing the exact same thing, and now they're yeah. protecting themselves better. And yeah. it's it there's this undercurrent of like social commentary just that's just really bleak, and it yeah. sticks to me a little bit. It's definitely bleak social commentary. The, the narration, at least at least from my taste, it's a little heavy handed. It's a little heavy handed. Sure, 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 sure. But but, you know, it, it's like one of those things where it's like I'd, I'd rather not, you, you know, dig into, you know, what these films 
could have been, you know, and 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 really, you know, rank them on what they are, because I think mm. it, stand, it stands without reason that like there's a lot of nuggets of great stuff in this film. And like, you know, it, it stands to reason that they could have been even better in feature film fashion with, you know, yeah. maybe a, maybe a more, you know, somebody with a, with a greater handle behind the lens. But that, that's no knock on the people that made this, because like I said, there are some really noble um notions about class disparity and urban mm. crime and you know you know people's you know people's functions in society on this sort of ladder of right. you know this hierarchy in, in society so there's noble stuff going on and and I, I and i think that there you know there's more than a few pretty damn good performances in this film and again you know like these this is an economical production you know it's a sure. 70, it's a 73 minute film and for what it does for the amount of people that are in this you know like People, you know, a lot of people get, you know, however limited they may be, they do have their time to shine. So I think, you know, there's a lot more to praise in this film than there is to really say they could have done better, if that makes yeah. any sense. I, look, I, I agree. I, I, I this is one that I've held on to and I'm not exactly I was always like I liked it. I wasn't exactly sure why, but I think uh, I think there's something about it that's actually trying to say something, um, and it's doing it in a very teasing manner. It's doing it like again, it's the same year that that um, taking a Pelham one two three, which was a hit book before it, they made the movie. It's the same year that that came out. Um, so under the the auspices of hey, you know, hijacking passenger trains is is a thing right now. We can we can market this. I think they're actually doing something a little bit more interesting potentially here. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, glad you dug it. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely good recommendation. So I think that's going to wrap it up for us on panic on the 522. But as always here at I eat movies, we got a second course for you guys. So sit tight because next up we have 1979's disaster on the coastliner. Two intercity super trains, one northbound, one southbound, one track. You said this system couldn't fail, Snyder. Lloyd Bridges and E.G. Marshall, they must stop the trains. Suspect an attempt by armed terrorists to abduct the wife of the Vice President of the United States. William Shatner and Yvette Mamur, they must die. Be the worst disaster in railroad history. Raymond Burr, he must make the decision. Mr. President. Disaster on the coastliner. As two trains hurtle towards each other and certain destruction... Premiering on 7, Wednesday night at 8.30. Now, contrary to more than several reviews on Letterboxd, uh, <laughs> Disaster on the Coastliner does not take place on a ship. <laughs> Let us just say that, because some people seem to be pretty surprised that the film took place on a train. <laughs> um, so yes, this is another uh, train-based TV movie. Uh, Disaster on the Coastliner premiered October 28th, 1979 at 9 p.m. sharp as the ABC Sunday night movie. Um, this was actually, you know, this being, you know, right up, uh, you know, well within um, the Halloween season. Uh, this was preceded by uh, Halloween is Grinch night. Uh, the Halloween that almost wasn't uh, the Mork and Mindy episode, a Monkville horror and uh, an episode of The Associates. Uh, meanwhile, on ABC at, AP, at 8 p.m., uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was airing. So uh, Disaster on the Coastliner was the alternate programming going on at good old ABC. Uh, mm. This one, unlike Panic on the 522 that did have VHS releases, um, 
Disaster on the Coastliner never received a DVD um, release. I think there may have been a VHS. I don't even think so, though. I, I I've think seen outside outside the U.S. Yeah, I, I've seen I've seen artwork uh, for in foreign territories, but I I do believe actually, um, like we said, you know, these are both available on YouTube. Uh, Disaster on the Coastline are definitely in better editions. Panic on the Five Twenty Two, at least the YouTube rip. It it can be a little troublesome to hear. It seems like the yeah. you know the, the mag track is just a little little scratchy, so it can be a little hard. You might have to boost up your volume. But uh, Disaster on the Coastline are definitely uh, better viewing quality. Uh, on YouTube, it's been but around. I, it's been around. Like, like I first saw this movie on Netflix. Like, yeah, like, it was on. It was on Netflix, and it was on Paramount Plus for a time. I'm not sure at the time of this recording if it still is. I don't believe so. Yeah. But it, you know, it pops up. But again, this is kind of the <laughs> the double-edged sword of streaming. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, certainly. But and it has a. I mean, it pops up with a with an Orion logo before it as well. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning, so it, it, it's it's out there. You know, it's out there and it's probably out there. I don't think it's a fully remastered version, but in a bit cleaner, like yeah. as you said, it's a bit cleaner than um, Panic on the 522. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to do the honors of telling us and our viewers what uh, or our listeners rather uh, what Disaster yeah. on the Coastliner is all about? I can do that. It's yeah. not a it's, 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 since you since you nixed that whole like, you know, ship thing. Um, so, all right. When the vice president's wife is forced to take a passenger train through California, a disgruntled railroad employee programs the railroad guidance computer to cause a head-on crash with another loaded passenger train, a train which he seizes control of and engineers himself. Can the railroad control stop it? A rail crew on the ground or the or the inhabitants of the train? Nice. This is this is really like, you know, bookending not just all these train movies of the 70s uh this is like a totally different animal like like i i think panic on the 522 is really trying is is it an era of time where um is it an era of time for lack of a better term that's almost more autorish almost more new hollywoodish yeah. that's trying to really like put subtext um that or, one's definitely trying to say something more whereas yeah disaster on the coastliner and yeah. you know for full disclosure this was my preferred uh, no, film I, well, but, of, of the devil, but it, it it's yeah. it, it plays more for entertainment. For yes, sure. no, this is this is I mean, this is very clearly um, like part of the blockbuster cycle. This is very clearly like this is really shooting for entertainment instead of because remember that a lot of television this period of time, you know, not just because of the blacklist though that's a, that's part of the story. A lot of people ended up in television who had uh, more political roots. Um, usually on the left. Uh, and, and you see some of that messaging a little bit more in the early 70s. By the late 70s, you know, again, Silver Streak is, is, is the big thing here. Silver Streak and the disaster cycle and so forth, um, uh, going into like hijacking type movies, which were picking up slow. So we're starting to pick up speed, I guess. Um, uh, what Canon Canon had already made uh, some some. Well, no, you, you had the skyjacking. You, yeah, it's skyjacked. You started to have more and more um, um, airplane hijacking movies besides, uh, what was it, it's Operation Thunderbolt or something like that? I think Cannon made uh, early on. This is but, a hijack. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyhow, 
but the terrorists, uh, the the film with Connery, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, but this is really this is really aiming for like high entertainment and and and, and high entertainment and and um, it, it just like Panic on the Five Twenty Two is loaded with big names, but it it, it, it you could start to see. I, I didn't mention it before, but I did watch Runaway. Uh, the mm-hmm. the other the other movie from the early seventies, which really represented a lot of older stars in it. Um, yeah, different era. This feels like the era that is about to enter the eighties. Oh, much <laughs> much much more so. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, um, so this is the Amtrak movie. This is this is the one where um a very pale attempt at <laughs> at illustrating uh at illustrating a, a very pale attempt to create a different railroad you see this in you see this in train movies all the time uh i just mentioned runaway uh runaway invented a it's not southern pacific it's sierra pacific on the southern pacific logo doctored for that movie uh you'll see this in other movies like the what's the one um uh the fugitive Uh then the fugitive came out there's this you know really like beautifully shot um uh freight train derailment scene and like I think it's like uh, India, Illinois Western or something. They invented a railroad for it. It's mm-hmm. it's 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 remembered well enough that they make models of that train yeah. from the fugitive. It only exists for the fugitive, but anyway. So right. they invent the Trans Allied Railroad, um, and we even see the outside of the Trans Allied Railroad building, and mm-hmm. we even eventually see some of the executives. Pretty, you know, basically like a day's worth of work from Raymond Burr um, (laughs) showing up as the executive of the Trans-Allied Railroad. There is no attempt whatsoever to hide the fact that they're Amtrak trains in the movie. Like, it's clearly Amtrak trains. And we are talking – this takes place in California. The two trains are traveling between, what, L.A. and San Francisco, I think? Yeah, northbound and southbound trains. Uh, yeah. And this is, yeah, this is sort of like a, our, our east meets west train episode in, in oh, that respect. Oh, <laughs> very much, very much so. Yeah. So so whereas Fi- Panic on the 522 had some New York locations, um, and, uh, you know, just it, it, they could do the external shots, and then most of it is, you know, soundstage and a couple of lo- L.A. locations. This is supposed to take place in California. And I do like the fact that they, they invent a place in California called East Lime. Yeah, uh, which is interesting because they weren't trying too hard. This movie was shot in Old Lyme, Connecticut. Uh, the, the the coastline that they're talking about makes a lot more sense, even though I you know I, I, I will I can say I've taken Amtrak on the West Coast. Uh, I have, and you kind of follow in parts like the Pacific Coast Highway. I think you do get some pretty interesting in in certain places, uh, coastal you know views from that train. Mm-hmm. But um, I already said that uh, that Amtrak started in 71, New York to Philadelphia. The Boston to Washington run of Amtrak is still, as far as I can, as far as I know, it was for ages, the main profit earning uh, segment of the entire Amtrak corporation. Most wow. of the rides are between Boston and Washington. Um, but uh, so this is this is part of that route. This is coastal Connecticut. Um, coastal Connecticut, a bit further north than the area that I'm familiar with. So north of New Haven, basically. Um, and there are some really great visuals of the trains that they were running on this section of track for this movie. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I'm not exactly sure because there's a body of water involved. So it's basically Old Lyme, Connecticut, a Niantic. Uh, it might be the Connecticut River. I'm not sure. You cross over all these different rivers. The, the Thames, I think, is the one by New London, Connecticut, and so forth. This is yet another train that I rode a lot. 
So forgive me for going a little too heavy on the train nerd shit. No, it's great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but this is uh, yeah, another showcase for um, a ton of actors. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's 79, so you might as well start with uh, uh, the, the guy who is um, – the, the the guy Lloyd Bridges who, who really made his name uh, at that period of time or the next year in 1980 not made his name he was a pretty established actor at that point but here he's the he's the yelling FBI agent who doesn't trust computers because yeah, this is an era of time he's a tech skeptic he's a, he, yeah well you know and, and I, I love you know before ner- way before nerd culture way before the term nerd mm-hmm. the idea uh, of people who are that tech you know. He do he derides them as eggheads. You eggheads, yeah. you you know, and so forth. <laughs> but he is the one who's really upset. He's the FBI agent who's pissed off. You know, it's great that the next year in airplane, he then becomes like the, the you know a, a cartoon version of himself. Yeah. If you know him from airplane, which I think most people probably do, this is him playing it completely straight. And to uh E. G. Marshall. Yeah. Um so Lloyd Bridges plays uh let's see, Al Mitchell, an FBI agent who is um in the control center. Uh, trying to monitor the the train, the south. It's the southbound number three. Mm-hmm. Southbound three. Uh, the vice president's wife is on this. There's an air traffic controller strike, which is pretty interesting considering it's a '79. This came out in the 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 air traffic controller strike. Right. The, one of the major parts of the, usually not looked at positively parts of the Reagan administration was 81. So it's only a couple of years afterwards that the real major one that made history. Wow. Um, Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers when they were striking. So oh. it, it, one of the biggest was one of the biggest blows to, uh, to unions. Anyhow, uh, Lloyd Bridges comes on like, uh, you know, he's pissed off from the get go. E.G. Marshall is uh, Ray, the Ray Snyder, Roy Snyder. He yeah. is in charge of the railroad. He is constantly bickering with uh, with Lloyd Bridges. You're already getting two veterans completely <laughs> like chewing the scenery because he's it. like, this is the way the railroads run. It's like, I don't care. I'm, you know, I'm the FBI and I'm going to override you. And we'll see yeah. about that. And, right. You know, we're already starting in a place that's comfortable and like makes <laughs> sense if you're going to watch an entertaining TV movie. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, these guys are bickering within this office. And then I guess now is probably as good a time as any to talk about probably the MVP or one of our favorites of uh, between the two movies. And that's Paul L. Smith. Yeah. Uh, who plays the character of Jim Waterman, a.k.a. Victor Prescott. And he is a computer tech for the company and also, um, you know, sort of the uh, the tragic antagonist um, that's going to put uh, the plot into motion where he corrupts, um, you know, a computer system to kind of, you know, have these two trains collide. Of course, the one that's carrying the vice president's wife. And, you know, slowly but surely as we go through um, the narrative, we learn, you know, his motivations for doing so. It's, it's a bit of a tragic backstory for his character mm-hmm. um, where uh, I believe it was six years prior in New Hampshire. Uh, mm-hmm. A train, a derailment happened that killed Waterman's wife and child. Uh, he claimed criminal ne- negligence against the company, who, of course, countersued him and won. Uh, Waterman is certain that they bribed the investigator who cleared the company of any fault and then right. later earned a job with that same company, which, of course, as we slowly but surely learn, is all true. Um, yeah. 
So the thing with this film, uh, similar to uh, Panic on the 522, where we talked about the, these title cards of like, you know, the 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 of the day of the week, the Monday, Tuesday, we see a certain uh, function in this one where, where we're kind of jumping between um, the the north and southbound trains. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, the thing that sort of like subverts people's expectations um, in this uh, in this film, uh, just to kind of establish this, because, you know, again, this is a film that has, you know, multiple moving characters. And of course, we're dealing with two separate train lines here. Uh, the northbound L.A. train is the one that the Waterman character who plays the terrorist, um, eventually uh, the William Shatner and the Yvette Mimeo character are mm-hmm. aboard. And then the southbound train, which is San Francisco, is the one that's carrying uh, the Pat Hengel character, who is the train yep. conductor on that train. Uh, and then um, the vice president's wife and uh, Paula's boyfriend, boyfriend, husband, boyfriend. I don't know. Um, the Yvette, yeah. the, the Yvette Mimiu's, um, you know, her. Uh, I think it's a husband. I think it's I husband. Think so, yeah. OK, so there. Yeah. So that's you know, that, that's important to establish. But what is it? You know, what is interesting about this film is that, of course, the whole crux of this is that it's trying to avoid or, you know, cause a derailment that's going to kill the vice president's wife. But we don't focus on that character. Like she, she is just sort of like a minor function. Like I think, I think we only see her once or twice. Instead, you're really, you know, heavily, heavily concerned with the characters on the northbound train. So immediately that's a really interesting function, especially if you're reading the plot line for this, you would not expect, you would think that it's all about, you know, you're focusing on the character of the vice president's wife and that's who we're going to be following. So, um, you know, right out the gate, I, I applaud this film for, you know, subverting expectations and focusing mm-hmm. on the characters on the northbound train for a variety of reasons, because they are in fact, the more interesting ones. And, um, although Lloyd Bridges is, you know, the, the quote star of this film, yeah. uh, I think it goes without saying that William Shatner, who plays the role of Stuart Peters, um, you oh. know, uh, no pun intended, <laughs> hi- hijacks the film from him, just entirely hijacks it. Well, I mean, it, it, certainly in the last like third or whatever you last act or what have you. Um, and, and, and if you appreciate, what was it? Um, uh, George Takei has always, he, 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 what did he, he, I'm trying to remember what he said. I calls it as I see it. He's just one big, great ball. Shatner's just one great, great ball of ego. And if you like William Shatner mugging, he is, you know, it just, it starts in a certain place where he's the con man with the double speak and he's trying to, you know, talk, he's trying to, 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 to kind of woo slash con Yvette Mimu's character, mm-hmm. it just kind of escalates further and further and further. And the movie actually ends with him mugging for a camera, yeah, um, yeah. believe it or not. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting in, in, in that. But um, I just want to quickly, I want to talk about Paul Smith again. But mm-hmm. uh, but before that, this is a Richard C. Serafian movie. who's yeah. got He's got a pretty interesting and kind of spotty, but, you know, when he's good, he's really good. Yeah, uh, wild career. Here. I was very, I was very surprised to see that he was the guy, you know, uh, uh, you know, leading, le- leading the team on this one. Yeah. So, so you know, Vanishing Point, uh, seventy one, a really great movie. Um, I unfortunately just had to miss it <clears throat> on the big screen. Lolly Madonna Triple X, which is, mm-hmm. I think, it's only on a Warner DVD, uh, uh, archive DVD. Yeah. Um, fantastic film. Uh, the Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, which I've been meaning to watch for a while. It's supposed to be pretty good. Sunburn, also. I mean, be meaning to check it out. Uh, it's 179. Uh, 84, The Bear. 
Um, the Eye of the Eye of the Tiger from Gary '86, which is um. You can't really say Gary Busey with that much enthusiasm at this point. Yeah, right? you know, no. unless you're really into like masturbating in the park or something. <laughs> Gary Busey. I'm not going to admit be, that on the. Is mic. that going to be called? Yeah, it's true. Uh, <laughs> is that going to be called the Gary Busey from? Anyway, go on. Uh, and then you know closes his career with um, a Jersey movie, uh, Street Justice in '87, which isn't great, but it's Joanna Kearns and uh, Michael Ankeen, and it is about, and I think actually might be shot in New Jersey. Um, oh. weird, weird. It's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, I have it on tape somewhere, but, um, but he is definitely like keeping the entertainment value high here. Um, yeah. oh yeah, he, no, I mean, the whole like, thing going. Yeah. 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 yeah de- definitely. I mean, I mean, he, he knows his way around the character, you know, uh, knows his way around, um, you know, a story and knows how to like, you know, carve out interesting characters and fun set pieces. Like he's certainly been around and the, the, if not for anything else, this movie is, is pretty engrossing and it, and it's highly entertaining, especially by its final act. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and, it, and, and I think some of those archetypes that, from silver streak, you get like, I love, one of the higher build people you mentioned, Lloyd Bridges is like the star. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the higher build people, it's like who is uh, Robert Fuller? Yeah. Um, who 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 he he's the uh, what he's I, we assume maybe partner boyfriend whatever. I think yeah. boyfriend's probably right because they they start arguing about where their relationship is at the yeah. beginning of Yvette Mimieux. He's the sleazy guy. Uh, the sleazy guy who's like, you know, he's picking up the girl in the bar car. Uh-huh. Um, uh, a real flirt. It, it, well, apparently, I think this is the reason he's, he's high build. Um, I think he was one of the main characters on Emergency. 125 which was a, episodes, yeah. Yeah, big big show of the time. That's got to be why they, they gave him. The, but he he's he's clearly having a, a great time being like the sleazy 70s guy. I love I love the scene in the bar car where he's like, Oh, you're from Oxnard. That's where I get all my fish from. Fish? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, don't, aren't you hip to Japanese cuisine? Like, come on, it's great. And I love he's talking about soy sauce, and he's like, yeah. oh, they dip it in this incredible sauce. It's like, it, really? Like, everything again, is everything, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, gotta tell them what they want to hear. Uh, that kind of that kind of nonsense. But he's, yeah. uh, you know, again, computers are 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 new and not to be trusted. And the idea of sushi is still kind of like, I mean, that plays into the 80s. Like even in the 80s, there's still gags about you eat you eat raw fish. So these are, you know, these are going to play a little weird if you're younger. But um, that's, you know, tried and true, like cheap comedy. Uh, But uh, yeah, so like that kind of thing, you really get like the episodic nature in in, um, from like Silver Streak. Yeah, totally. Uh, another uh, person that we do want to mention, I know I briefly mentioned it, is Pat Hengel, who plays John Marsh. Oh, uh, yeah. Train, the train conductor on uh, the southbound San Francisco en- train. En- engineer, engineer. Engineer, sorry, yeah, uh, but just great. I mean, a, a start in everything from Splendor in the Grass, um, you know, Hang Him High, Bloody Mama. He played Colonel Tom Parker in Carpenter's um, Elvis film. Mm. Uh, he was in Norma Ray, uh, of course, uh, Stephen King's only directorial effort in Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> Very memorable. And he played Commissioner Gordon in uh, the four Batman movies from uh, Tim Burton's 89 Batman through. Uh-huh. Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin. So, you know, very well storied career. Always loved when Pat Hengel, you know, popped sure, up in anything. Yeah. And it was a it was a real delight to see him in this. Um, I like him in the Super Cops, by the way. Yeah, if totally. You, if, you, if you know the Super Cops, he, I think at one point he says to the, the characters, Batman and Robin, um, let me see. You two belong in the New York Police Department like I can walk on water. 
<laughs> I almost wonder. I I really wonder if he got cast in the actual Batman movies because of his role in that. Like, did, did was somebody cool enough to know that? Like, you know, could, yeah, that's well, there. There is that. Yeah, could have been. Um, but yeah, he he's wonderful in it. Of course, you know, William Shatner playing the con man, an unlikely, uh, you know, hero of the film. Of course, Star Trek, uh, you know, Impulse, uh, Big Bad Mama. It is funny looking at everybody's filmography. Uh, of course, this is, you know, playing it more straight, um, mm. you know, as, as like, you know, a, an entertaining thriller and this being just a mere year before um, the deconstruction of these types of films for for laughs and airplane. But of course, you know, we mentioned we'd see uh, Lloyd Bridges in that. But then yep. Raymond Burr uh, would pop up in Airplane 2, as does William Shatner. So oh, we boy. see a bunch of people popping up in sort sure, of what sure, would sure. become like the, you know, the parody brand of what you know, the straight version of, of these films, which is disaster on the coastliner, but, but, uh, you know, uh, an interesting connection nonetheless. No, it's fair. It's fair. Um, all right. So quickly on Paul Smith, uh, Paul Lawrence Smith, born Everett, Massachusetts, um, started acting or at least made his debut in films in like 1960 as like a, a smaller role in Exodus of all things mm-hmm. by 1970. I think he ended up with Israeli citizenship uh, he directs two movies 10 years after his movie debut in Israel, 70 and 72. Um, one of the really great footnotes in his career are the, let's see, five films he makes in Italy. Carambola, Carambola, Filotto Tutti and Buca, the Simone and Matteo movies. So because he looked like Bud Spencer, <laughs> because he looked like Bud Spencer... <laughs> They made five movies with him and, let's see, Antonio Cantafora um, as Simone and Matteo, sometimes in English, uh, Butch and Toby. Mm-hmm. They made five movies that are knockoffs of the comedy westerns, the Trinity movies, and w- which are Bud Spencer and Terrence sure. Hill. And he plays a guy who looks like Bud Spencer. Why not? Why not? Why Why not? not? Okay, amazing. So then, so that's between 74 and 76. He's still doing TV stuff, U.S. TV stuff in between. Ends up in a movie that the English title is Return of the Tiger. It's one of the Bruce Lai movies. Okay. Why not? Mm -hmm. Um, That's the year before he makes what he's arguably best known for in terms of serious movies, which I also watched this week. A great bummer, uh, but amazing. Midnight Express. He is the incredibly vicious, like, warden. He doesn't speak a word of English in the movie in Midnight Express. Pops up in a small role where he knocks down a door in the in-laws. Uh, shows up in Going in Style. And maybe, okay, you know, you could argue that he's better. He may, he's equally known. He's in Dune as well. He's equally known uh, for being Bluto in, in yeah, the Popeye. Popeye. Yeah. yeah. So, and then that's a couple years before what all the exploitation, you know, and genre nerds will know him for, which is pieces. pieces of course. Sharing the screen with... Uh, Linda Day George, of course. She is again. Yeah, yep. yeah okay. there it is. There it is. Bastards, bastards, bastards. Yeah. Yeah. I always liked him too in Haunted Honeymoon, the Gene mm-hmm. Wilder. I know it's not like the most revered Gene Wilder, but I always liked him in that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, you know, I of... have to sit down and watch it again. I, I, yeah, I, I, it's fun. You know, it, it's 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 silly fun. Sure, sure. Um, and and you know, I think a later period one that I have have not watched, but I think a. Is, is David Carradine with it? 89, Sonny Boy? Yeah, yeah, Paul, yeah. He is the star, right? Paul Smith, or is it Carradine is the star? No, it's Car- It's Carradine, I think. It's one I've been, it's, it's been on the stack for a while. Yeah. Uh, I think he's got a smaller role in it, but yeah, yeah, it's Carradine. Okay. I think Carradine's in drag in that movie. Oh, okay. 
I might have to watch that this weekend. Now. I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I um, might join. I might join you. Well, um, look at that. Uh, oh, as we're you know, as we're just coming off talking about uh, our cast, we've obviously talked about Richard Serafian. Um, I do want to make a note of the writer, mm. uh, oh, English yes. writer uh, David Ambrose. Um, he also wrote The Fifth Musketeer in '79. Final Countdown in 80, The Survivor in 81, Amityville 3D in 83, which was, of course, directed by Richard Fleischer. Um, Daryl, that's D period A dot, you know, you know the whole thing. Uh, Blackout in 85 and Taffin in 88 with Pierce Brosnan. So pretty cool credits to his name. Taffin is pretty, Taffin's pretty good. I think Blackout, TV movie Blackout is uh is solid uh he wrote md md 3d under a pseudonym though which i think it's pretty fun (laughs) he he did take a pseudonym interesting (laughs) though that you know he did uh the survivor and a dangerous summer his two aussie movies 80 81 and 82 that 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 he uh you know two australian films he he threw in there as well i've seen the survivor yep yeah i i you like that? I, I, I'm curious. About uh, that. It's okay. I, I yeah. don't remember it being uh, totally memorable, but it was fine. Right. It was yeah. fine. I still have a, uh, always working, always happy to watch another Aussie movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple other people I just want to quickly mention. You mentioned uh, Carlson, the guy who's a railroad student, the inspector they give the job to. That's an early role by Lane Smith, who went on to God knows how many performances and also pops up in um, On the Yard, right? Yeah, On um, the Yard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Harry Caesar. Playing a conductor here, Carrie Caesar is another veteran at this point of uh, of, of train movies. He, he plays uh, Coley. He is the he's the fireman who shovels coal into the steam engine in Emperor of the North. A lot oh. of small, uh, a lot of fun small roles. He's in he's in the Big Fix. He's in he's he's I think he's a singer. Was a singer turned actor as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Jason shows up. Uh, Peter Jason and Michael Michael Pataki. Michael Pataki, yeah. another everyman of seventies cinema. Yeah, um, John, Peter Jason, longtime uh, you know, John Carpenter alumni. Ab- they, absolutely, they, they play the two undercover cops that are searching for Shatner's characters. Really cool to see them pop up. Not a whole oh, sure. lot for them to do, but like awesome to see them. Yeah, but 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 you know, with the with the the sparkling photo finish of how tidy this movie wraps up, and it is tidy, and it's it's a little ridiculously tidy, but it's totally. so much fun. It doesn't matter. Peter yeah. Jason does have that moment. Of of like wow this guy you know when, when you do get the the full re, the full like like uh resolution on the character of of, of uh Stuart peters oh he was wanted by the cops but it's because he ripped off some bad guys so it's kind of okay you yeah. know peter jason has that you know well he saved everyone on the train what do you say to a guy like that and peter jason says you don't say anything you just drink to him it's yeah. just because like, it's like it's the 70s and you're yeah. on the bar you're in the yeah. bar car you're supposed to be tanked exactly you know? so. I, I mean this is definitely as you say you know like th- this is a film that is played for entertainment's sake it, it yeah. certainly requires you know maybe an extra strength of uh you know suspension of disbelief but that's all part of the fun of this one and, and literally everybody is, is super charismatic yeah. and and engaging in it and, and again like i said you know william shatner I think he steals the show from Bridges. Cause I don't really think as, as, as cool as, and, and the banter that Bridges and EG Marshall have in the control room, again, sure. a very economical choice. You know, it's the beginning kind of, of the movie though. It really yeah. tapers. Off. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it does taper off, but again, very economical choice. They're just in a control room. And then, you know, the, you know, the, the scenes that take place on the central location of these, of these carriage cars on, on mm-hmm. this train. But, you know, Shatner's just so charismatic, his, his flirtatious nature with Yvette Mimiu, which again, Yvette Mimiu, um, 
we brought her up several times. She's the woman that's mm-hmm. seated next to Shatner, and you know they kind of have a flirtatious nature going on. Even though she, she becomes, keeps finding him lying to her. Oh, totally, <laughs> and, and, and is very, very apt and quite hip. That you know, almost immediately that the cops are after. Him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, she, you know, he's telling her uh, tall tale after tall tale. Um, you know, he, I, I had written some of them down because they're hilarious. Um, he, he weaves tall tales initially about a bitter divorce and alimony payments, yeah. leaving town and then lawyers were thrust upon him but then later on he claims that he visited his ex's house and he assaulted her boyfriend and you know he just feels terrible about it but then eventually as you said the you know the truth comes out uh, paula pulls it out of him after discovering um you know the uh, mounds of cash in his suitcase learns that it's counterfeit money used um with crooks um but you know the flirtatious nature there's just you know you can say what you will about Shatner. He's obviously very one note, but oh, if, yeah. if you're hiring him to play that note, he's going to play it pretty well. And he I does do, it in this. we should, we should note that Shatner um, does open the movie in disguises and he has like fake beards and mustaches <laughs> in this, in this uh, briefcase. Uh, to be fair, um, you know, by 79, many of the formula uh, for disaster movies was pretty well spelled out, but you know, the idea of a con man in a disaster movie I don't know if it, I mean, did it, it probably, maybe did it, it maybe existed before the Towering Inferno, but let's not forget, Fred Astaire plays a con man in the Towering Inferno. So that's already like, an, like the guy who's, he's up to no good, but because of the circumstances, because things have gotten real, he yeah. drops, he drops his uh, nefarious side and he tries to be a decent person. And yeah. there is that whole relationship. Um, I forgot who the, 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 the female actor is opposite him. Where she knows he she sees through his his bullshit bullshit in in the towering inferno and he's trying to sell her stocks to a thing that doesn't even exist yeah. and he's just kind of like oh, I'm terrible at this con man yeah. business you know <laughs> so it's kind of like an echo of something that already exists in in the cycle of of disaster movies but if there's so if there's one guy who comes close even though it's it they're not that important the uh, the track the, the track crew the Gandhi dancers as the, as they were one time called. Uh, is a guy whose name I've tried multiple times. I do like this movie. Uh, multiple times to get his actual character name in the into IMDb. I'll try again today. Uh, Jefferson, played by the one and only Rockney Tarkington, mm-hmm. who is the lead in Black Samson. Okay, he mm-hmm. is. If he's not the head of the rail crew, the Gandhi dancers, the, the guys who are who are replacing track, he is the most charismatic one. Because yeah. he's like, because he's like, it's gonna hold. It's good. He's got lines like dancing and a prancing, a grinning and a picking. You know, he's got these lines where like he's the one who's telling everyone on the rail crew, we're gonna do it. And so like, if if the beginning of the movie has the you know has Bridges and Marshall and so forth, the end of the movie is Shatner and Tarkington. As far as yeah, I'm. you know, this is this is interesting because it, it, we're we're conducting this episode just on the heels of me. Seeing a 35 millimeter screening of Airplane at uh-huh. the Mahoning, so sure. like I, I, this is just all like on right the, at the Fourth of July. On the Fourth of July, yes, yes. Now, no better way to light up the sky than with the suckers. Um, but <laughs> I just think that it's pretty funny with these two characters. Yeah, they're incredibly memorable. But just just seeing that this is like a year before Airplane, and we we know that like Airplane is is basically completely you know um zero hour played for laughs like you know that's pretty much that that's pretty much well documented but it does it is interesting that in this film 
we have obviously Lloyd Bridges, as we said. You know, we have Shatner. We, we have we have uh, Raymond Burr, who's who's going to make appearances in that sequel. But I I couldn't help but find some sort you know a funny correlation between these two um, railroad. Um, uh, crew members, and then the 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 two African American gentlemen on airplane, the ones that are doing the jive talking too. Like, a part of me was like, did they watch this movie and take this and then play it up for like ramp it up for laughs and airplane? Because I I could not help but see that. You know, it's not laid on quite as thick, but I could almost see them because the the characters in Disaster are very memorable. Like, it's a very but it's scene. really mostly. I mean, it, he's playing off of the other, and and this is another one. It's not Robert Doque, but the other, the well, it's it's a it's a mixed black and white rail crew, and most of them don't yeah. have any any dialogue. But there's another black character there. Yeah. Um, but he's like the guy who's trying to talk down the enthusiasm of Jefferson, yeah. of the Rockney Tarkington character. Mm-hmm. And I, I, he's one of these guys. It's, it's going to kill me. I'm going to have to figure out who it is because it's not on IMDb and until I put it on IMDb, and that sounds a little grandiose of me, I know. But still, it's <laughs> not there, and I, no one else has done it. Yeah. But he's a guy I recognize. So I don't know if it's exactly that, but yes, the, the the big thing is completely against logic and, you know, railroading and probably yeah. almost so, certainly physics. Yeah. There is that scene where they think they think this 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 uh this crossover track that they've just constructed <laughs> like 30 <laughs> yards of track. Yeah, they're going to like do this so that the one train can like hop yeah. the track to the other but, side but with, with like long like pikes with long, like long steel pikes they all you know jefferson's like that's it we're gonna do it the train's coming but if we if we hold the track in place you know with all these long these long iron pikes we can do it and yeah. he and everyone's like he's he, he, create the, the other black character the other african-american character says well you, i don't know you, jefferson i thought you create and he's like no that's it i'm gonna do it and then everyone in the rail crew is like all right we're with him and they yeah. all lean the pikes against the bottom of the rail and what's his line which is still like totally memorable to me i love that this is part of the reason i love this movie he just goes let me hear you groan yeah. you know <laughs> you know these are the these are the these are the guys who sweat you know who are sweating under the sun working on the rails so doesn't yeah. he promise the crew too that if they finish they're like everybody will get an extra week of vacation uh, something ridiculous like <laughs> something that. Yeah, like yeah. that i was like this is great this is i mean great yeah, like the, the 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 actual train stunts in this are kind of laughable, but there is a pretty well, good there yeah. is a pretty good like there is a pretty good dive into the water. But yeah, yeah, well, but, I, you know, but that's, I want to talk about yeah, that's there... fun. And and uh, just before, uh, just to get off of uh, of Tarkington, who I think is great, and he is, you could call him a second or third tier guy in the black action canon of the era. But mm-hmm. I think he was a really good actor, and Black Samson's a good movie. Yeah. Um, but he uh, and then then there's the whole thing where the train is bearing down on top of them, and it's it's almost as if Tarkington knew he was only going to get this little bit of screen time, so he makes it. He waits to the last possible second until he jumps out of the way of the train, yeah. where it almost looks like he's tripping the train right before you know l- 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 yeah. for that. So it's like it just he's given so much, yeah. and it's just it make it, to me it helps make the movie. Yeah, that, and then- let me hear your groan, of course. And yeah, and, and that little moment right there again, it's 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 a it's a really good suspense build there too. Like that that's what this film does. Again, it's playing, you know, it's it's 
playing different, you know, mechanics than Panic. This one more so for the entertainment value. But, like, you can see how the suspense is way better crafted here, in my opinion. Yeah. It's, it's oh, yeah. certainly better crafted. But um, it's, also sure. reliant, it's also reliant on stunts. It's yeah, reliant it's, on it's stunts done. and not simply as, like, a you know, a tight capsule of, like, stage acting. Yeah. It's, it, 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 and and they, they had the, they clearly had more money. Um, yeah. And they were switching between different locations and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, I, I did say earlier on, like, you want to definitely probably take this with, like, you know, an extra strength dose of suspension of disbelief. But even with that, even even with it just, you know, kind of like convincing yourself that this is obviously, you know, fictional stuff, they do go to some lengths to kind of establish, like, well, how could this possibly be achieved? Like, how could Waterman pull this off without this? Like, they, they do make the attempts to kind of make, you know, demonstrate how he's pulling this off before oh you, no it makes sense yeah. yeah like waterman like he hijacks the radio communication between control and southbound mm -hmm. train so it's not as simply as like the control is radioing the hingle character because he's he he's in command of that he right the waterman character can only talk to um to hingle's character um you know and then on that note waterman encourages um, Hingle's character of Marsh to keep the train <laughs> rolling to ensure that uh, the terrorist that is aboard his train doesn't gain entry to his to his helicopter yeah. even or to his area even as a helicopter tries to get him to stop where the helicopter is like almost trying to get in the way of the path trying to tell him to stop and Hingle is like I've, I've never disobeyed an order in 30 years yeah. and I'm not doing it today so it doesn't make sense <laughs> you're like why the fuck can't they just radio him it's like well here are the reasons why like they're at least trying to establish why this isn't as simple as like well can't they radio the fucking guy yeah and i, lo I love how hingle plays it with like zero doubt whatsoever i'm gonna keep this train going forward like i have for 30 years it's just, yeah it's, it's, exactly it's, it's cartoony but it it's it still it still kind of feeds into like the fun of the whole thing um it, it is cartoony but like you yeah. said this one this one affords you know more suspense building and the yes. stunts are what make it and yes, you know there, there's that really great moment where Stewart, uh you know shatner's character bravely crosses cars to attempt unhooking the car holding all the passengers from the rest of the train he right. succeeds in doing that but he obviously gets trapped on the moving side with waterman as we said the the the, the track installation is successful yeah. um but this is probably the most climactic and exciting moment of the film and i don't know if you know this or not but mm. when shatner does climb the character shatner's character yes, climbs yes, aboard yes, he's doing that yes, he did yes. that which yep, is yep, insane yep. and he had said you know later on shatner is quoted as saying that like next to having the tarantulas on his face and kingdom of the spiders like he this was like the most foolish thing he ever did and he doesn't yep. even understand why he did it like why yep. he took the risk but like for a tv movie like that that is selling it man like the oh, absolutely it really absolutely. pays I mean, off because when this thing really when this thing really picks up it's like wow this is a lot of fun yeah it's, it's a lot of fun a lot of fun and you know like even up to that point you know he you know, Shatner, you know, tries to, you know, uh, pulls Waterman up to the top of the cabinet. So they're both on top. They're trying to For like, no clear reason. Like yeah. it, it, there's no explanation to this other than the point of like action. Like, OK, so Waterman got what he wanted. They uh, they made an announcement on television. You know, he can take down. <laughs> I love the props that Waterman has. First of all, he has a kitten for no clear reason. At the beginning yeah. of the movie <laughs> to give away to children. And then he has like the, the baby shoes he ties up in the cab. And the cab, yeah. <laughs> the locomotive. And he's like, all right, well, they did that. So um, 
I guess I'll let William Shatner rescue me. I'll let this random guy who's climbing on the top of the, the locomotive rescue me now. Because, like, yeah. what was the plan? <laughs> like, what, what's the function here? Again, again, similar to our, you know, to the, our trio of hoods and panic. Not the yeah. most well-thought-out plan. Like we get everything, it, but, but everything else was, you know. Yeah. This is a guy who actually, like, programmed a board inside the computer, you yeah. know. To, to, but, you know, what are you going to do? It'll, it'll take him weeks to unscramble this. <laughs> But, you know, to, to to underscore, like, you know, this is a different time. And, you know, TV movies maybe were arguably, maybe they had a little bit more of a uh, social awareness. Uh, but with, with the earlier part of the 70s and, and Panic on the 522 and so forth, we're in a different era. And we are in a sensational era, not just the blockbuster cycle, the disaster cycle and so forth. I want to talk about the, the, produ- the some of the producers on this movie, okay? Mm-hmm. So the main guy, the big guy, over 150 TV movies. This last one is 2020. Wow, Frank von Zernick. Okay, just to, I, I'm not I'm not even going to mention all these, but there's some certain trends here, some certain like attempted salacious trends here. So, uh, <laughs> so let's see. We'll go in reverse chronological order. He's the guy behind, usually executive producer, Calendar Girl, Cop. Killer question mark the Bambi <laughs> Bembenek story from '92, uh, something called Combat Academy, a comedy with Keith Gordon from '86. Excellent. Uh, Policeman Centerfold in 1983. It's a TV movie. Are, <laughs> you know, um, one uh, that he shares with the associate producer. I'll get to him in a second. Called The Babysitter, which is supposed to be pretty. I, I think I need to see The Babysitter. One of the things I love about TV movies is I have seen a lot of crap all right i've seen a lot of movies and so forth and there's always more to see but it seems like the well of tv movies one leads you to five and it's like what you know and some of this stuff it's got like it's probably a lot of garbage but i still sit through a lot of it the babysitter 1980 portrait of a stripper 79 anatomy of a seduction also 79 and katie portrait of a centerfold in 78 a lot of centerfolds yeah he had a type yeah you know a a lot of police women you know like calendar (laughs) girls and so he had his niche interest that he knew he could sell really well (laughs) yeah so the so he uh, this is over 150 movies for von zernick the associate producer not a big body of work but he had something Anyway, uh, David Garcia Jr., associate producer on Disaster on the Coastliner. Um, he's also on The Babysitter, also in a movie called Portrait of an Escort from 1980. Mm. Um, he's also on the one I just mentioned, Anatomy of a Seduction, but maybe most notably, almost certainly most notably, the 1975 TV movie with Robert Culp, A Cry for Help. He's, a, oh. he's an associate producer on, um, which is really, really good. That's the one where uh, Robert Culp plays his asshole um, – uh, radio DJ, where some woman calls in and claims she's going to kill herself and then hangs up. And the rest of the episode is him trying to figure out where she is and gets help while he's stuck in the studio with other people calling in. And, and it's this is actually 79? That's 75. So and is, I, that, it, is, that, is that prior to play Misty for me? Or is that in the wake? Of it? it's, like, it's after it's after. okay well i, I like that I, I i like dj radio based tales so that's cool no it's it's really it's it's a really good uh it's it's really good um like tension for a tv movie and on top of that it's directed by daryl duke oh, which is really cool so very yeah cool. that's that. and that's your associate producer on this so you know the the term that we use for um 
uh, uh, that came up over and over for the primetime panic box, uh, the original one and the one coming out soon, uh, was ripped from the headlines. So these are screamer headlines. The This is an era of TV movies that are trying to get like, I mean, there's boatloads of TV movies being made, but they're trying to get your attention with things like strippers and babysitters and centerfolds and female police officers and so on. And so this is like, this is the era we're going into. So disaster on the coastliner is also yeah. part of that. It's a different era of TV movies, but some of them can be pretty damn entertaining. Like this, this one. This sensationalism that has probably been turned into just the shitty reality television that clogs our airwaves now. But this this recalls a time when these things were fucking entertaining when they worked. And yes, disaster when you, on the coastliner. When you, when you could go into the bar car and order a Harvey Wallbanger and hit on any woman there within five feet of you. Yeah, absolutely. I do love, you know, as we close, you know, that the one, you know, Shatner playing the one note Shatner, but we really get that great moment where he really, really screams it from the the rooftops when him and Waterman jump off the top of the train and uh, they jump into a river and then he's kind of pulling Waterman out. And then there's that moment when like the police and the, you know, ambulance are coming (laughs) and Shatner and true Shatnerism just goes, hang on. Yeah. Why? (laughs) But I love it. You you were a con man. 10 minutes. When when did you develop empathy for this guy that was trying to kill everybody? But It it doesn't matter. And, you know, I, I watched, some of these kind of movies uh, as a kid. And it's like the fact that they're willing to do all this stuff and then still have the resolution, the happy resolution. Like uh, when, when uh, Paula Harvey, the Yvette Mimu character ends up in the station, she's, mm-hmm. she, she's like, what, I, I want to know what happened to the man, the man who saved all those people. And there's a happy cop. They're like, yeah, let's go find out. You yeah. know, it's all good. And on the way, she just happens to see the boyfriend, the sleazy boyfriend with the other woman the, yeah. who was drinking the Harvey Wallbangers, and he was telling her about Japanese fish. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, so he's a sleaze also. So I'm going to go see the other guy, the guy who's yeah. the hero. And the happy cop will help me. And we tied the whole thing up, and it's beautiful. <laughs> it's like, great. There's 90 kinda, minutes you're in and out and you feel entertained as hell. It's idiotic, but it's still so much fun. And it's it like, is. maybe that's the best. Maybe that's one of the, you know, one of the goals of a TV movie of this type. You know, it, it's like, well, we don't really know anything else about, about, about the, the, the Paul Smith character, but yeah. it's okay. Cause <laughs> it's we, we've got Shatner and a happy ending. So exactly. Exactly. And that, that's, that's really all you could ask for. Um, great stuff though. I think that is going to close the book on this installment of I Eat Movies number 33. Always fun to return to some small screen uh, hits, you know, some definitely certainly overlooked stuff. Uh, That's what we try and do. We strive to do bring these things to your attention, guys. So seek them out. As we mentioned, Panic on the 522 on YouTube, also available on VHS. Uh, Disaster on the Coastliner, also on YouTube. So pretty accessible. Definitely check these things out. Uh, as always, appreciate you guys tuning in, listening, supporting. Uh, Dino, can you tell the good people where they can find I Eat Movies? Mm, certainly. Uh, on Facebook and on YouTube, we are I Eat Movies Podcast. Please rate us on any podcast devices. We are looking to get back to a regular schedule, but you know we're also looking to get back to normal weather. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, and we'll be back soon.
Yeah, definitely. Uh, always a pleasure, buddy. Happy to talk to you, see you. I know people can't see you. I'm seeing you and listening to you. Have and sympathy this... for him. He has to look at me. Yeah. <laughs> no, this this was a pleasure. It's been uh, it's been too long, but uh, always uh, always a good time to hop up uh, back on the mics with you and uh, talk and eat movies. Certainly, right. That's it. That's what we're here to do. And uh, yeah, very happy to put this one together. Um, anything else you got? No. Other than, uh, you know, eat more damn movies. Thank eat you, D. Movies. Thank you, sir. Yeah.